This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by Bubs Naturals, yet another company that I tracked down to bring on as a sponsor because I myself love their products. They are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a 20% discount. But before we get to that, I do want to highlight a few of the products that I use myself. Firstly, collagen. I am about to turn 50, um, and so my hair, my skin, my nails, not really a big concern when I was younger. Definitely a lot more of a concern now. However, where I've really seen the impact is joint health and gut health. And have been blown away that when I'm consistent using collagen, Bub's collagen in this case, I see a massive improvement in both. Another area, I drink coffee, love coffee, and in the morning I use the Halo Creamer. Now originally I used the MCT oil powder, but now they have the Halo Creamer, which has also got grass-fed butter in it. A lot more creamy if you're not trying to go for the vegan option that they have as well. Now it's important to mention as well the altruistic element of Bub's Naturals. The origin story involves Glenn Bub Doherty, one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi, and a good friend of the founders, Sean and TJ. So 10% of every single sale goes towards the Glenn Doherty Foundation. Now, as I mentioned before, they are offering you, the audience, 20% off your purchase if you use the code SHIELD. That's S-H-I-E-L-D at bubsnaturals.com. And finally, if you want to hear more about their products and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 with co-founder Sean Lake. 
This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker, and what makes me smile is before I even started my podcast seven years ago, when listening to other wellness conversations, Inside Tracker was always the company they recommended for comprehensive blood work. Well, now in 2024, they have begun to offer a brand new first responder panel, which will cover nine biomarkers hitting several of the pillars of health that affect us in uniform, stress, heart health, metabolism, and gut health. Now, after a very simple intake form, a blood draw, you will get the results sent to your computer, smartwatch, phone, not only detailing where you are on the scale from poor to optimized, but also tips on how you can improve each of these markers. Now, this panel is usually $310, but they are also offering first responders 30% off any of their blood panels. So that brings this specific panel down to only $217. Now, I myself went through their ultimate, which is their comprehensive blood work, which also includes micronutrients, hormones, and other areas of overall health. And I have to say, I was absolutely amazed at firstly how easy it was, but secondly, the comprehensive information I got and the actionable information on how to improve each of my own biomarkers. Now, as with all my sponsors, if you want to hear more about Inside Tracker, you can hear my conversation with senior sales executive Jonathan Levitt on episode 887 of the Behind the Shield podcast. So to sign up or simply learn more, go to insidetracker.com. And for the first responder panel, the easiest way is to Google Inside Tracker first responder panel. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing. And for a while now, I have really wanted to bring on a voice to speak for the people of Gaza. Now, with the polarizations that we've seen in so many of these conflicts, it is hard to find that person who stands in the middle and is simply talking about the humanitarian crisis. Well, thank you to my friend Mohammedine, I was able to find Dr. Thea Ahmad. Now, Thea is a emergency medicine physician in the south side of Chicago. He himself is a Palestinian, first-generation Palestinian-American. And as you will hear, his father was saved by an Israeli doctor. So what is incredible about this conversation is this is coming purely from the reduction of suffering and death amongst the Israeli and Palestinian people. He talks about a powerful experience in Jerusalem, watching Jews and Muslims pray side by side. He talks about some of the compounding elements that led to October 7th and beyond. And most importantly, he talks about what they are experiencing now, the destruction of schools and hospitals, the death toll of 12,000 children, Palestinian children at this point, the desperation on the medical side, the withdrawal of funding from UNRWA, and so much more. So the goal of this conversation is to educate us. I was an avid student. I don't want to know one side or the other. I want to stand in the middle and alleviate as much suffering and death as possible. And what makes Thea's perspective so powerful is he just returned from Gaza after delivering medical humanitarian aid with a few of his colleagues. So I hope this is as powerful and educational for you as it was for me, because there's only one question. What can we do to stop the suffering? So without further ado, I introduce to you Dr. Thea Ahmad. Enjoy.
Bea, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to our mutual friend, Mohammed, for making this introduction. And secondly, to thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it and appreciate it, Mohammed. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I'm in Chicago, Illinois. I'm actually in a suburb of the Chicagoland area. That's where I was born and raised. Well, I want to start there because we want to learn more about you and then we'll kind of explore the medicine in, on the, the state side first. So tell me exactly where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Sure. I mean, my parents are both uh, immigrants from Palestine. They came in the 80s. I was born at Cook County Hospital. And um, for anybody that is familiar, it's a, kind of this famous county hospital in the Chicagoland area known for uh, trauma and known for where all of the people um, who were training in medicine uh, for a very long time would somehow rotate through Cook County. And I was uh, part of a Palestinian diaspora community that decided to pick Chicago for some reason. There's so many of us here and grew up on the south side of Chicago. And eventually, as uh, we moved uh, on with our lives, we were able to kind of move into the suburbs area, the southwest suburbs. And right now, actually, I went to high school and uh, right now, this if you were to put on Google Maps, Bridgeview, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, its nickname is Little Palestine. And if you were to go down uh, the street uh, on Harlem, which is the main road, you'll see tons of these Palestinian businesses. Um, even their advertisement or their signs are in Arabic. You, you Sometimes you won't even find English. And so it's a very small community. Most of us are uh, made up of first and second generation Palestinian Americans. Of course, there are other uh, Middle Easterners who are also a part of their own diaspora community. But, it, you know, that's essentially kind of um, the, uh, I'd say, the environment that I grew up in. It's just a ton of people who had the same kind of story, came from Palestine in the 80s, uh, immigrant parents who are trying to figure out uh, how to raise their kids in America. And so there's, uh, there's a decent amount of us. So firstly, what did your parents do back in Palestine? And then talk to me about their immigration experience. I came from England. It was a pretty flawless transition, really. I'm not escaping, you know, anything too sinister. I speak the language. So, but I'm always curious because I think that, you know, this is a country built on immigration and some of these immigration stories are beautiful. Yeah. I mean, my father had graduated from high school and he wanted to become an engineer. I mean, that was his dream. And so he came to the uh, to the United States, to Chicago, to the Illinois Institute of Technology and wanted to finish becoming uh, an electrical engineer. At some point, he decided he thought it'd you know, be good to get married and um, you know start a family. And so my mom, who is actually from uh, a suburb of Jerusalem, uh, but ended up being displaced during the 67 war to my father's hometown, which is like a very rural village, also a northern suburb of Jerusalem, but uh, more north than she was. She was a little closer to the to the old city. And uh, she got displaced to his village. I mean, this is a village full of farmers, three or four main families that make up the entire village. It's called Aram. And uh, they were able to kind of meet each other. And, uh, you know, they decided to get married. They fell in love. And he was here for a while before he was able to bring her over. But eventually um, she came uh, to the States. And I actually was born while he was still a college student. And there's a picture of me at his graduation. Uh, my father's no longer uh, with us. He, he passed away five years ago. But um, it's actually interesting because I do want to mention this. I think it's shaped so much of who I am. When my father uh, was nine years old, he developed rheumatic heart disease. So he had strep throat. And again, 
his family's, um, you know, uh, a farmer village uh, sort of family. And so they didn't really um, kind of pick up on the signs when he first got sick, when he had strep throat, because it just kind of was this uh, infection and this lingering weakness that never went away from my dad. And ultimately, um, as a result of this, you know, rheumatic heart disease is something that essentially is, uh, is uh, your valve gets destroyed after you have strep throat and you need to have surgery. And so my father essentially was uh, having signs and symptoms of heart failure as a nine-year-old. And ultimately, uh, you know, the care that he needed was not going to be able to be provided by Palestinians because at that time it was um, just the Israeli military was the one who was the administrator of the West Bank and, uh, and, and Jerusalem. And so he had an Israeli doctor perform uh, surgery on him and uh, replace his valve. And I think uh, to me that's shaped so much of who I am growing up, just knowing that there's this dynamic in place that, you know, there's this conflict that exists in the region. And my father um, was able to get this sort of life-saving care done. So there is an opportunity for this sort of uh, ability to have some peace and to um, be around each other without it having to result in sort of occupation and conflict and siege. Um, so yeah, that's a, you know, just kind of a brief uh, uh, little history. But I will say this, my parents had every intention of going back. So growing up as a kid, I have three siblings. We were always under the impression that we were going to go back to Palestine and we were going to live in Palestine. Of course, that never materialized for uh, many reasons, but mostly uh, Palestine was never stable enough to for us to be able to go back and actually uh, pursue the things that we wanted to pursue. And so that uh, that dream stayed a dream. It was never realized by us. Well, firstly, I can imagine what it must have been like for your dad in a village with only three families having a hot girl suddenly appear out of nowhere. So kudos to him. <laughs> yeah, he did. My mom always says that he definitely... Um, yeah, she, you know, he, he was the one who pursued and multiple times, uh, would, you know, was basically trying to get, you know, some, some of her attention. And then finally, you know, she said, decided to give him the time of day. Now, did he become a, an electrical engineer here? He did. Yeah. He finished his degree, became an electrical engineer, um, ultimately ended up, uh, you know, kind of becoming an entrepreneur, small business owner. And I mean, that's what it's funny because that's so many, uh, that's the story of so many Palestinians here. They're all small business owners and entrepreneurs and, you know, pretty, they, for some reason, they've got some decent, you know, skills in kind of running and uh, opening up their own businesses. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the thing, you know, of course, if you come from, for example, Haiti, there can be that desperation can send you down a more criminal path because that was your normality possibly when you were growing up, but the innovation of people that came from countries that had very little and then they're given a little bit more abundance in the US. I mean, there is such a potential for success in this country. Yeah, I mean, that's such a, I think that's such an important point. I try to communicate that to my colleagues all the time. It's, you know, it, it is not, uh, you know, it, we don't, we recognize and appreciate the opportunity here in the States because of the lack of the opportunity back home. I mean, just your, the ability to go to school and pick what major you want to follow, that's not something that exists in the Middle East. You have to score very high on your college entrance exam to become an engineer or a doctor or an architect. Um, if you don't perform well, there is no just registering for classes while you're in university and trying to pursue that. It's not going to happen. So, you mentioned about you know, your mother being displaced because of the war of uh, 67 and then not be able to return because, again, of the volatility. 
what it, what was the conflict that they reported from their parents and prior? Because as you mentioned, you know, an Israeli doctor basically saved your father's life with his surgery. So kind of talk, talk to me about the historical conflict that you remember as a young boy. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, something that I think has affected most families um, in Palestine. Um, everybody is uh, affected in one way or another about sort of the different conflicts that took place. But in 67, uh, there's this, you know, six day war that took place. And I think what people uh, will look at if they were to, you know, learn about this in their history books is they just hear there's an armed conflict between Israel, Egypt, Jordan, these countries. But um, from my perspective, uh, I'm a Palestinian. And so there is no national Palestinian army. There's just Palestinians who are living in different parts uh, of the of the land that's there. You know, my mom and her family were living in Jerusalem in, you know, a place called uh, Silwan. And so it's a town that's near Jerusalem. As this war takes place, um, Israel defeats these uh, Arab armies that they are fighting. And they're able to occupy Jerusalem uh, and the West Bank. The West Bank was formerly under Jordan's control. And they're able to occupy the Gaza Strip and, and the Sinai Peninsula, which was under Egypt's control, um, as well as the Golan Heights, which was under Syrian control uh, prior to that. Uh, so, you know, they they have their military in these lands. But then what really happens is there are Palestinians. And if you're viewed as somebody who um, supported this war in any sort of way, if you were on the opposite side of the Israelis, there were consequences for that. And so uh, my uncles were all arrested and served lengthy um, uh, prison sentences in Israeli uh, uh, dungeons. Their house was demolished. Um, many people's houses were demolished. And essentially, there was an increase in the control over their lives. Um, that's what you, when people hear the word occupation, I think it's sort of this abstract concept, but this was a military that acquired land after a war is occupying that land. And then the people that are in that land that's now occupied have, are subjected to certain treatments. So you're not able to move freely. You're not able to have a normal job. You have to be accounted for by this military. And I think my mom's family is just an example of uh, thousands of families in, in 67 who had to move. Um, you know, we, you know, in 48, we know it as the Nekba, which means the catastrophe. And that's when the, uh, the creation of the state of Israel took place and 750,000 families were, uh, Palestinian families were displaced to the Gaza Strip, to the West Bank, wherever it is, to Jordan, to Lebanon. Uh, actually in 67, we call it the Nexa which is the other chapter that took place where there was a massive amount of displacement and a lot of suffering that took place. And so it's also marked as a moment in our history. And so each subsequent uh, conflict that took place afterwards, whether it's the Yom Kippur War in 73 or uh, uh, in Beirut, Lebanon in 82, all of these things were additional chapters that people were, uh, that people kind of marked and they remember pivotal moments in their life. And for my mom's family, it was losing their home. I remember she said, she said they were doing really well um, before 67. I mean, they even had uh, like a driver, you know, like an idea like they could, you know, that they were, they were middle-class family who was really enjoying life. Her father was this, um, uh, worked with like diplomats and everything is gone after that. I mean, she distinctly remembers looking at her house after it was destroyed and demolished and only having, only being able to take the doll with her in her hand. You know, she remembers that moment as, you know, as a, as a four or five year old at the time. And that's, you know, that's something that's ingrained in her memory. She will always remember how that felt. She remembers how her brothers and her father were arrested, how they were uh, in their um, 
boxers and in their shirts, their uh, their undershirts. You know, so these are these are moments that we grew up with and that we realized something had happened to us. Maybe I wasn't able to process it as a 10 year old or as a 15 year old, but it shaped my identity and this longing to have that sort of uh, that dignity and that ability to say, like, this is my homeland and this is I'm working for something in my homeland, like in Palestine, I'm working towards something that's a service to my people or building the country you know, or like building it in a way that um, is, uh, you know, has a has a future for the people that are in it. When I see the images of, as we, uh, you know, anyone who's not connected to Gaza, you know, Israel, Palestine, a lot of us were, I think, surprised at you know, the borders, the control, the, the fences, the gates, et cetera. And for me, in the era I grew up in, it reminds me of, you know, Belfast and it reminds me of, of Germany before the wall fell down. And in, you know, each of these examples, of course, you can, you can either create a place for, you know, where you still have a footprint in that country, but you're not, you know, oppressing that country or arguably, you know, East Germany or East Berlin, excuse me. Um, you know, it could be converse. And I'd say that, that Korea is another good example of that. Um, talk to me about the, how, how it devolved. And I use that word deliberately to where it wasn't just, you know, sharing land with, with people from another country, but that there was now this kind of, you know, these, 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 uh, fences and, and borders and, you know, machine gun nests and all the things that we're now starting to be, you know, educated as kind of naive people. And again, this isn't, um, you know, demonizing everyone from Israel, I'll be very clear about that, but it's understanding the whole picture. Yeah, I think that's, I, I'm glad that you prefaced it with that, because for me, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist and I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not political or I would never call myself an activist uh, in any sort of way. So I, I'm glad that you kind of uh, introduced it in that way. Uh, for me, I think the best example to bring up is to talk about uh, two different areas and just paint the picture in a way that people can realize um, the differences in what we're talking about. I was able to visit Jerusalem in August, and it was the first time that I had been allowed to land in Tel Aviv um, because the United States, essentially, uh, the policy that they had uh, that they had sort of set forth is they said, we would like, uh, the Israelis said, we would like to be a part of the visa waiver program. And I, I'm, I, James, I'm sure you're probably familiar with this, but the idea is that you're able to come to the United States without necessarily having to pay for a visa. You can stay for a certain amount of time. You can open up a bank account. You can do different things. It's a special status that America grants to different countries. And so the Israelis wanted to be a part of this program. But the uh, problem was that there are many Palestinians, Palestinian Americans who are not, uh, it has to sort of be this reciprocal thing, right? So if I'm an American, I can land in Tel Aviv and I should be able to get my passport stamped or have no issues, just like an Israeli who comes to the U.S. should have no issues if we are a part of this program. That was not true for Palestinian Americans. And so the U.S. said, we want this to be the case for Palestinian Americans. Thankfully, um, this program was created and in August, for the first time, I was able to land in Tel Aviv as a Palestinian American, and I was able to get in. And my mom, too, uh, for the first time, was able to do the same. I took my mom and my wife, who's also Palestinian. She was born in Palestine. And um, so we were able to enter, and it was the first time that we got to see all of these different areas that we had never been able to see before. And it was primarily because there is this sort of separation and that freedom of movement doesn't exist. So normally, we would have to land in Jordan. And in, from, we land in Jordan, we'd have to drive down to the border between Jordan and the West Bank, and we cross over. You'd never be able to land in Tel Aviv and go to Jerusalem and then go to Ramallah or go to any areas. But I visited Jerusalem. 
And it was beautiful. The old city was amazing. I mean, you are walking down this historic place and you are seeing Orthodox Jews at the wall praying. And you are watching um, Christians from all over the world walking in the old city. They're carrying these massive crosses and they're going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And you're watching Muslims who hear the call to prayer and are going to Masjid al-Aqsa or the, um, you know, the, 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 the mosque, uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque in, in Jerusalem. And everybody's walking past each other. People are buying from each other's storefronts. People are eating. It's amazing. And it was, uh, it was so, like for me, it was, of course, very spiritual. I'm a, a Muslim. And just kind of being able to be in that area, knowing the history behind it, it felt amazing. But also there was this sort of, like this uh, realization, like, oh, this is, we can clearly live together with no issues here. I mean, everybody's, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of interested in what's important to them and they're being able to do so. And so I felt, I felt that this was, I felt special. I felt this was super special. I felt so connected to the area. I felt that everybody was kind of respectful of each other. After uh, my visit to Jerusalem, I then went to Hebron uh, because I actually wanted to visit the, um, uh, the, the, the Tomb of the Patriarchs, I think is, I think is the English translation of it, Haram al-Ibrahimi in Arabic. And you saw the exact opposite of that in Hebron. Hebron is a part of the West Bank. Uh, it's technically, um, you know, not a part of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Israel, but it's a part of the West Bank. And you are struck by, as you're trying to visit this religious site, there's suddenly all of these sort of cages and and these metal detectors and the screening and then there's military there and they're grabbing your passport and you're going through a search and a check and it's taking forever to get through and there's a lot of shouting back and forth and you're kind of, uh, you know, if somebody could probably pull up this image, you'll see the cages that I'm talking about because right outside the cages, then you see all of these different settlers who are moving about freely, hanging out in this area. There's a lot of tension and animosity there. And so you're like, okay, this is the wrong way to do this. So I just saw how this can work. And now I see why, how this is not working. And um, for many parts of the West Bank, that is something that you see. You see this massive wall in front of you. And sometimes you'll see Palestinians who will throw a rope over the wall and try to climb over if they need to get something from you know, Jerusalem or they need to get something from, they need to make a purchase or they even have an appointment with a doctor. You'll see them climbing over this wall. And then you'll see all of these different military checkpoints. And uh, I remember just traveling in the West Bank. It's miserable to travel there, James. I mean, it's so hard. There can be a random checkpoint. They can close a road for that day. Um, It's just so obvious the, the differences between these two areas. And for me, that was just another, like I had always heard about this and known about it and had seen it before. But the being able to experience uh, legally uh, Jerusalem, the way that I was able to experience it, and then going to Hebron and then going to Ramallah or my hometown of Daram, it was depressing, to be honest with you. It, it, it hurt. It ripped me up inside because, you know, you just you just feel it. You feel that, you know, the word occupation has become so so uh, so charged, but that's what I that's what you felt there, and I think that's um, that's the best way that I can describe it. See, this is what's so so sad. Like you said, you literally watched in this case, you know, Jews and Muslims, you know, side by side, worshiping together. 
and then change, you know, change over just a few miles and you have a completely different issue. I've had British soldiers on here and they they struggled with going to Northern Ireland because a lot of British, you know, military were deployed there at some point because they were like, how how are our own people the enemy? They didn't view, you know, the Northern Irish as as as, you know, terrorists or anything else. They were Basically, these two rocks, as I always talk about, we're two tiny rocks in the middle of the Atlantic. How are we different? I mean, we're we're the same country, basically. And then, you, you know, again, you see the same here. When before we dive deeply into what's going on now, what is different? How how do you think it got to that point where at one place you can worship side by side, and another place it's this kind of military oppression going on? It's to me, uh, at least the way I understood it and the way I'm di- the way I digest it is it's clear that you I look at the agenda that's in place by different parties that are, for whatever reason, at the decision making table. And I see even within Israeli society, there is this um, there are different uh, parts of it that no that there is it's not homogenous I should say it's not everybody saying you know this is what we need to get done what I see is that there is a very that there's this sort of right wing extreme group that ha- that draws on secular and maybe some religious I'm not sure because I'm not an expert on it but what I see is that there is this approach to the land uh, saying all of this area is a part of something that should be called the Greater Israel there is this sort of uh, understanding that this belongs to greater Israel and it needs to be a part of it. And that's when I look at what's happening on the ground, it, that makes sense that that's sort of what's transpiring. So settlements in the West Bank that keep growing and growing, and now you're going to probably within five years, you'll reach a million settlers in the West Bank. It makes sense that that is a really hard fact to change on the ground. How can you What's going to happen to these 100, you know, million settlers? And then what is going to happen to all the Palestinians who have, who are hoping that where those settlements are right now would have been the homeland in this, you know, in a two-state solution compromise? That would have been, you know, uh, known as Palestine. And so you see that that is, uh, that plays a role in how this conflict erupts because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's not as if it's this stalemate or the status quo. It keeps changing on the ground, and Palestinians uh, will tell will will are, feel this the most. They keep seeing that there's an encroachment, and it keeps growing, and there's a new settlement, and then there are new settlers, and uh, the ability to move around gets much harder. So I can't have a life um, that exists, for example, where I have a job as a doctor in Jerusalem, but I live in the Ram in the West Bank. That you know, that was a possibility in the past. That's no longer feasible. Um, and it's there's this growing separation. Uh, but at the same time, the the that sort of increase in uh, the settlement and increase in control of this territory, of this area known as the West Bank, that is that has only become more and more problematic. I hear the people who maybe are more moderates or on the left side. I always hear about, you know, us, there can be a diplomatic solution and we can come up with a two-state solution and we can kind of move forward. I don't, you know, if you look back starting in 2000, um, that has not sort of been, I would say, the dominant voice when it comes to policy decisions. And I think I see, that's the reality on the ground that you're seeing when you see uh, more settlements popping up and then you see more of these checkpoints. Um, and the more that you see of those, just just know that the farther away we are from a nice, peaceful solution. 
I've heard this from more one more than one country that when a figure really gains the trust of the people and is really trying to spearhead a coming together or a community, more often than that, more often than not, that person ends up getting executed. It happened in Afghanistan. And I believe if but please correct me if I'm wrong, the people that were behind that movement, the same thing happened with you. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, in, uh, you know, the famous stories, the Oslo Accords, it wasn't even a signed deal. It was 1994 in front of the White House. Um, and uh, Yasser Arafat and um, the prime minister of Israel at the time signed this accord. I mean, these were people who were bitter sworn enemies. They absolutely hated each other. And they finally signed uh, a deal that was saying another deal will come like this is we're going to start talking to each other. And, you know, that the, the prime minister of Israel was assassinated when he came back a month later. I mean, that was you know, that's unfortunate, but that's yeah, that's kind of what that what that's what takes place. And even now, um, many Palestinians including myself, feel like because of those forces that are so against a real peaceful solution, the Oslo Accords actually were probably the worst thing to, to happen to Palestinians because, you know, it was just created this sort of strong resistance and reaction um, to, you know, any sort of uh, peace taking place of, by the extremists, of course, uh, by extremist uh, people who are not willing to have conversations or compromises. It's just, that's unfortunate that that's who kind of, um, makes these decisions that have this ripple effect for decades to come. Yeah. Well, I mean, even looking at our own soil here now, if you look at what is most likely the backstory of the assassination of JFK and Martin Luther King, it wasn't some dude in his house going, ah, I don't like that guy. It was most likely the powers that be that were like, well, this person's really bringing everyone together. And we're going to yep. lose some of our power. So, you know, we can look overseas and go, oh, you know, that's a shame what happened over there. Well, that's happened on our own soil over and over again. You know, that's really uh, that's such an interesting point. There is um, I think people should really look into uh, the, the 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 conflict that took place between uh, John F. Kennedy and his secretary of state, Dulles. You know, and you can just see how forces are going against each other. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of new, I would say, um, historical records and books that are coming out just talking about how JFK is somebody who maybe wanted to move away from this sort of Cold War era. And then his in his own cabinet, you have somebody who is very t closely tied to the military industrial complex and this idea of perpetuating war and conflict can bring so much money and you kind of see it play out. But um, yeah, I won't, I won't go down that rabbit hole right now. <laughs> we got enough things to talk about. Well, while we're in the US, let's go back to your journey. So your father was an electrical engineer. Um, you're growing up in Chicago. Walk me through why you chose medicine. You know, I mean, I think um, I wasn't always uh, convinced that I wanted to be a physician. Um, I, my parents, of course, loved the idea. Uh, just, you know, this the, getting into this profession that back home was, uh, you know, it was it was such an honorable position. It meant so much. It had so much meaning for them in, in Palestine. Um, and it was so hard to become a, a physician back home. But I think I was very much tied to um, humanitarian work and just relief and um, it's something that my parents clearly instilled in me. My, my, my mom for a period was working like as a special needs teacher. And so um, this whole idea of, you know, human beings and trying to alleviate suffering, this, this uh, noble, noble, noble cause was something that if you're able to, if you're given the opportunity, don't shy away from it is kind of what we were brought up with. It's like, if you get a chance to help someone 
you better not leave that chance on the table here. And then you have to also look at another person who is in a worse position than you are and not make an assumption about who that person is because of that. Their circumstances or their environment, right, it may, it may have put them in this position that's, you know, they're worse off than you are. But it's nothing to do with the character of who that person is or something that they did wrong or something wrong with them. I remember my dad would always say that because there would be people who, you know, are in really tough spots or they may need some help. And the one thing that he would not tolerate or accept is any of us or anybody around him kind of making judgments uh, about those people. Because he's like, you know how easy it is for us to be exactly the same way. There's nothing special about us and nothing wrong about them to think that they're in this position because of that and you're in this position because of this. So I grew up with that. I went to, um, while I was an undergrad, I was very interested in psychology. And I got to, while I had a gap year, work in humanitarian relief. And I think that exposure, uh, I've been to, I went to Gaza as a, you know, as a part of a humanitarian relief mission. I dealt with Syrian refugees, just in the Middle East, being able to speak Arabic and interact with those people. Um, I knew I wanted to be involved some way with that. And then I really, I came to the realization that I actually wanted to get my hands, you know, for lack of a better term, dirty. I really wanted to work with my hands. I figured being a physician and then being a part of the global health community was the best way to do so. And I thought I thought I could be more impactful too um, if I just gained that sort of knowledge that comes along with being a physician. So walk me through your kind of you know, journey into medicine and then why you chose emergency medicine specifically. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I think it was clear what I wanted to do, I always knew I wanted to be an ER doctor. I just didn't know that it was uh, emergency medicine that I was that would take me there. Um, you know, we were in. I remember being in medical school, getting into finally getting in, and um, sharing with my mom. Uh, it was September, and I had done an interview at Michigan State University to you know for the School of Medicine there. And I remember getting a phone call at, on Friday, and them telling me, "Hey, you know, we want to let you know." We're going to accept you into the school of medicine here. Um, this is one of our favorite parts of the job. And I remember how excited I was. I was getting ready to go to Friday prayer, actually. And uh, I called my mom and she wouldn't answer. So I, I hammer called her five, six times. <laughs> and then she calls back and she's she's annoyed with me. She's like, I'm at the doctor's office. I'm at an appointment. What's going on? I'm like, okay, no problem. Just go back to the, go back to your appointment. I just want to let you know your son is going to become a doctor. Like I'm going to, and I remember she, she, she tells me now that um, she was so happy that she grabbed the doctor and squeezed and hugged her. She's like, <laughs> the doctor was super awkward about it. And, uh, you know, I remember, uh, you know, sharing that I wanted to see my father and tell him because I knew he was very invested in this um, because, you know, he had dri driven me to my interviews and he was with me every step of the way. And I remember uh, just kind of that happiness and then realizing um, that I wanted to be more um, than just um, like this physician who lives this nice life, who's going to make uh, some good money and who is going to kind of, uh, you know, have that traditional story. I wanted to have a real impact. I thought about legacy even. And so even in that moment, I was looking for what would give me the opportunity to be able to have an impact. And I knew that that was fulfilling because I had worked as uh, as an outreach coordinator for, for an international NGO. Like I knew that satisfaction for me was the success of a project in an underserved area or um, relief entering into a post-conflict zone or a natural disaster, being able to strategize about how you deal that I gained so much satisfaction from that. So throughout medical school, I was looking for that opportunity. 
And I realized the best place to do that would be kind of that, the front lines uh, because you get a real exposure to what's happening every single day. And I remember rotating through the emergency department and dealing with issues like, hey, this person's uninsured. How are they going to follow up? Or um, this person we is is unconscious and we don't know any history. So how are we going to, you know, how are we going to go about this? How do we know what's going on here? Uh, and even little things like a homeless person, it's really cold outside using the emergency department as a shelter and using it as a place to get warm. So just being exposed to all these different walks of life and then realizing also that I'd interact with people in the emergency department that they, that Otherwise, I'd never interact with them. There's no way I'd ever meet this person or hear their story or know who they were. I realized emergency medicine is the way I want to go because it's essentially this gateway into the life of every single person. And um, I found it. I found that privilege of being with somebody. And I mean, you you know this, but like when you are talking about delivering care, you're talking about somebody initially that that whole like that first response, those first moments, the front lines. Um, it's intimate, man. You're in, these people are, you know, you're, you know a lot about them in a very short amount of time. Um, and so um, I found that to be an incredible privilege and, and I wanted to expand that globally. And so I think that's kind of how I was able to finally figure out that I wanted to go into emergency medicine. So talk to me about Chicago's South Side. I mean, every every area has its rougher places, and I always sought those out as a firefighter paramedic until until my last place, which protected a theme park, so that doesn't count. Um, yes. But uh, prior to that, you know, that is where you find the most desperate people. And like you said, the arguably the least support. They might be homeless. They might be a sex worker. They might be an addict. They might be just poor. They might have lost everyone in their life. Um and so, you know, to me, there was there was such value in possibly maybe even being the only person that day had even been kind to them, regardless of whatever medical intervention you did. So what, you know, talk to me about the South Side. What what does it look like socioeconomically and what were the kind of cases that you were seeing the most? Yeah, I, I'll say two. I'll, I'll tell you about two parts of Chicago that I think is important and touches on it. It's the South Side and the West Side. And the reason I bring that up is I mean, they, they both have their own problems. The South Side has been... Um, in, has been struggling with gang violence for a very long time, as far as long as I've been alive. Um, and it's a very territorial place. So you need to understand that there are blocks that are controlled by this gang, blocks that are controlled by this gang. And as a result of that, the entire community is affected negatively by this gang violence, not just uh, at risk of being shot or uh, violence. It's not just that. It's the fact that businesses won't go there. Um, there is this concept of food desert in Chicago, especially the south side and the west side. It's these impoverished areas that are affected by gang violence. Um, grocery stores don't open up there. And so, you know, you have these blocks, uh, this, this you know, radius, uh, uh, these neighborhoods where a family cannot go and get some fresh produce. And they have to rely on convenience stores or liquor stores to have what they would need. And of course, they're not going to have, um, you know, the things that the, these families would want, but they'll, these families will have to work with what's, with what they got and what's available. Um, and on top of that, there's no investment in these communities. How does that manifest? It manifests that the fact that, you know, the city of Chicago maybe doesn't make sure that these schools are uh, as good as they can be. Uh, the teachers are not paid well. Uh, the classrooms uh, are not equipped. They're not getting the resources that they need. So, you know, there was one assessment, and I, I can't remember exactly 
what the what the numbers were and when it came out, but it was while I was in medical school, uh, so about ten or fifteen years ago. But it just talked about the illiteracy rate of high of, of kids in high school in Chicago public schools. There were so many kids who are functionally illiterate. There was this famous singer actually uh, that uh, she was on American Idol. Her name was Fantasia, but she was uh, she was a product of that, and, you know. And so um, we're not giving anybody in the South Side. A chance, you know, you just don't give them a, a chance to succeed. And um, these kids uh, uh, are are growing up in this area where nobody, where it's, it's just totally neglected. Nobody pays it any any attention. Whereas you find other parts of Chicago, and you'll see this: there's a new park, there's a new library, uh, there's a brand new classroom. Everybody has a laptop or an iPad so that they can be able to access their homework. I mean, it's like. Uh, you go from seeing where kids are given every opportunity to succeed and and fulfill uh, their potential to areas where um, every, the entire system works against them. And I bring up the West Side, too, because the West Side is a little different. The West Side is uh, was really, really affected. It, there is some gang violence, but by drug use, specifically heroin, there was this you know, uh, uh, dependence on heroin in the West side that absolutely ruined the West side of Chicago, made it super dangerous, impoverished, same sort of, same sort of, uh, story in terms of lack of attention and investment. But the reason people started paying attention to the West side, and it's still very much a, a, a tough spot is because there was a highway that connected them to wealthy Western suburbs. And so the media started paying attention. It was called the heroin highway where, you know, people from more affluent backgrounds would go to the west side of Chicago, get, you know, get the, the heroin that they needed and go back. And it started affecting those wealthier communities. So people started paying attention to that. But Chicago is a, is a, Chicago is a really interesting place because it is still very much segregated. Um, it's still separated by socioeconomic status. It is still a very corrupt city from with respect to uh, elected officials. I mean, that's why it's called the Windy City, not because it's not because it's cold and windy, but because our politicians can be swayed, you know, in whatever direction, as long as you're paying them. And so, um, you know, all of that ends up working against a regular person who's trying to just live their life in Chicago. All of these different things, it works against them. And so I think um, when you're training in Chicago, I went to medical school in Chicago. I also uh, trained in Detroit um, that had a kind of a, a similar background. But you're you're really exposed to um, just how some people uh, don't have how some people the way that the system is supposed to work is not working for them. It's absolutely dysfunctional. And that's kind of a. Uh, that's a tough thing to kind of digest as you're like as a as a doctor or as a medical student or as a resident. You're like, okay, um, this is wrong, but I can't do anything about it. I've got to discharge this patient home who I know will has no doctor anywhere near their house, is not going to be able to afford their prescription medicines, and will not follow up. And so I don't know what's going to happen to them. But this is the this is the hand that I'm dealt. And so I just watch them walk out the front door of the emergency department, knowing that you you didn't do much for them. You didn't kind of fulfill your duty. There's so much to unpack from those observations. I want to start with um, the school side. So I had a gentleman who now lives in Australia, but he's from Finland, and he tours the world talking about the Finnish education system. And if you look at the kind of league tables, they're always number one or number two. And in the conversation, he was talking about how they look at the child holistically, the whole child. 
and where there are issues, you know, where there are maybe areas of, of Norway, excuse me, Finland, where it's poorer, where there are, you know, greater challenges, they put more money funding support into those areas, arguably, especially with this ridiculous standardized testing, you know, money system that we have here, it's the opposite, you know, as you spiral down, you're only going to get worse and worse and worse. So, you know, there's that one part. Now we take Chicago, you know, we know the, uh, the uh, name Al Capone because of alcohol prohibition. After that happened, we're like, well, this was a complete disaster. Let's not do that again. And then literally about two years later, Harry Anslinger puts in um, drug prohibition, starting with reefer madness, and then it snowballs from there. And I, me personally, as a firefighter, as a paramedic, having pulled so many yellow sheets over so many corpses, have witnessed firsthand behind the curtain of the ripple effect of drug prohibition, the gangs, the prostitution, the homelessness, obviously, you know, the addiction and overdoses. And so my personal opinion is that that, just like alcohol prohibition, has been an epic failure. It should never have even been allowed to be a thing. But And when people hear that conversation, like, oh, so you can now go in the grocery store and buy meth? Like, no. If you're caught with a user's amount of meth, you're funneled into addiction treatments, mental health uh, treatments, job creation, which they did in Portugal. And I had the guy that spearheaded that on the show a couple of times now. So it's taking the money on the quote unquote war on drugs, which everyone knows is an epic failure and proactively putting it into getting people from traumatized back to, you know, functioning members of society that are also now paying taxes. So what is your perspective of the impact of drugs, whether it's the selling, the violence or the addiction on the health of Americans? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I totally agree with kind of everything that you just said, because we're, what we're seeing is we're seeing sort of the effect of this. And I think anybody that works um, in medicine realizes that there is this vicious cycle that takes place. If somebody overdoses on heroin or on fentanyl, which is very popular nowadays, and you're able to, uh, you're able to save their life and you're able to give them the Narcan that they need to start breathing again, and then they walk out of the emergency department. If you think that the care stops there, then you failed that person. You failed, you failed the community because if they're, at, if they're at least willing and asking for help, which many people I see, I mean, I, many people are, are saying, yeah, I would like to, you know, I would uh, not like to have this addiction that I'm struggling with. And if you're not able to sort of address that in a holistic way, we're failing them and we're going to see them again and again and again. You're going to see that person come back. Addiction has long been viewed as a vice and not as a medical problem, not as a disease. And when you start addressing it as some, something that somebody is struggling with and not that this person is just a lost cause or they suck, you know, if you start thinking in terms of, okay, how is this affecting their body, their physiology, the addiction center in the brain? How can I support um, any sort of recovery and abstinence from this? And you start funneling resources in that direction, you will have success. And we have a program the hospital that I'm working at, it's called the Trauma Recovery Center. They were able to get a grant. And what they look at is they take a look at victims of trauma. Uh, they look at people who have been uh, struggling with access. And they try to do these interventions on a community level and on a personal level. Because it's not just that, hey, you came to the hospital with a gunshot wound. And we're going to treat the gunshot wound and give you your tetanus shot and make sure you don't get it infected. It's what else does this person need 
to allow them to succeed in life and to have better health outcomes be, as a result of that. So if we can, we're starting to do that with, I think we're very slow with respect to, and I'm talking about the American medical system, um, with respect to trying to address that from the drug perspective, uh, from drug addiction. But um, I'm starting to see some really successful programs that just look at, okay, what does this person need? How, how can we support them in their journey? And sometimes it's, establishing counseling and i'm not talking about drug uh, you know like a like a drug addiction center i'm talking about actual just like a uh, a social worker or a mental health uh, counselor or somebody that can kind of begin having a conversation that you can develop some incredible individualized programs but and these people can have this amazing recovery but it has to start by realizing we have to build these institutions i i, I that that's so fascinating just hearing about like how finland is functioning because they're in, it's institution building now. You're just creating a whole system and a culture even that's being able to say, hey, we have, uh, we have an opportunity. There's a gap here that we can kind of fill here. There's, there's, there's something that we can do for these people. And so um, I don't think we're anywhere close to where we need to be. I'm starting to see more people realize that we have to start funneling resources and money into things that help actually help people as opposed to um, uh, reduce, uh, you know, simplify problems. I think... That's uh, that's been dominating the the narrative for a very long time, um, but I you know I think we're on the right track. I think people are waking up to it. Yeah, I, I really hope it's going to be a paradigm shift. I think we're starting to see it. Obviously, marijuana and people you know we use that as an example of a failure. It's like, well, no, because you didn't you know decriminalize everything. That's just one thing, which is a plant right. should never again have been demonized in the first place. But with the psychedelics now, a lot of the yeah. communities, especially the Navy SEALs have had phenomenal success. And the irony is the very men in this case that fought for us overseas have to go to a different country to get the treatment for their their PTSD. So I think that the whole thing is starting to be debunked and, and seeing the success of Portugal and some of these other countries that financially makes so much more sense. And then you're also breaking that multi-generational trauma. If you're the child of a broken home because you lost a parent to, a, you know, an overdose and the other one's in prison or whatever it is, what are the chances of you in now a very poor area with really shitty teaching standards and no disrespect to teachers that are in those schools that just have the lack of support? What, you know, your percentage of success goes down. And this is what's mm -hmm. so maddening. The same as the, you know, these, these kind of influencers talking shit about people that are overweight and saying, well, you just got to do is get up and run and eat salads. Yeah. It's like, well, like you said, the perfect example, I grew up on an English farm where I had an orchard full of, you know, uh, fruit and, and a vegetable garden. But if you grew up in the South side and there's a food desert and a bodega or a gas station is the only place that you get food, are you going to yeah. have the same chance to be and you know, have a good body composition than someone who lives yeah. next to Whole Foods who's in a wealthy neighborhood? The answer yeah. is no. So the environment dictates. And if you look at the uh, OxyContin, you know, crisis that then led to the heroin crisis, you know, it was they were targeting poor areas that, you know, had seen a loss of um, industry. So there was lost jobs. There were mental health. There were injuries from mining. And I mean, I mean the mental health element of being in a dark mine all day, the, you know, the psychological effect that that might have. So it wasn't just the drug, it was a combination of the drug with people who were, you know, subconsciously not realizing that they were escaping. It might have been alcohol, it might have been an opiate, but it was the the combination of the two. And if we're just having the, oh, we'll just give a Narcan conversation, you're missing the massive mental health element that is addiction. 
the drug is simply a way of filling the void. Yeah, well said. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, uh, that's a, such a strong point. I mean, it's just about trying to get the whole story and not, not reducing it to, you know, one, one, one specific thing. So one more area, now, then we'll go to, to Gaza. But another thing, coming from the UK, we have national health. Now, is it perfect, especially at the moment when it's been stripped to bare bones? No, but I absolutely adore the philosophy. And when it f- was first around, when I was growing up, it was an amazing system. And I watched, for example, my 99-year-old grandfather have the best care when he was ultimately diagnosed with cancer and then sadly hospice. But he had been priced out of the private insurance that they'd paid alongside before he got ill. And the NHS was phenomenal. When I think about um, you know, the addiction, the gangs, all these things, when you have a profit-based system, the kind of I got mine system, as you said, we don't have to worry about how that homeless guy is going to take care of his, you know, his septic wound because he's not on my policy. What is your perspective of that altruistic view that your father bred into you versus the way our profit-based system is in, in the U.S. at the moment? I think if anybody just peels back one layer, they realize this is not sustainable and it doesn't serve any person any good. It does not serve the interests of people uh, on any level, community level or individual level. I, I, I'm actually like surprised that we've gotten this far, uh, especially removed from an attempt to kind of have some degree of like, um, uh, uh, I don't want to say nationalized healthcare, but this sort of healthcare for all uh, a mantra. We, you know, it's it's amazing that we're probably like 15 years from it, or you know, uh, at least over a decade from people kind of talking about this and legislation being passed to it being just as broken as it's ever been. I mean, this it, it just blows my mind to think that um, we aren't looking at healthcare as a community based uh, problem. And, you know, this idea of, hey, you, you, you pay, you know, you pay or you get what you pay for. Um, it doesn't work when it comes to medicine. And uh, one thing that I struggle with um, that I'm witnessing as a, as a physician, as a part of a big healthcare system, is these healthcare systems are getting bigger and bigger. They're, they're, they're eating up these smaller healthcare systems. These insurance companies are getting bigger and bigger. And now they're starting to talk to each other in a very flirtatious way that's very bad for us as patients. Um, you know, you are saying, you know, you're, if, if uh, my healthcare system is home to a million people and they have a million patients that they take care of across seven or eight states, and then you have this huge insurance company that's also in that same region, they're looking at each other like, hey, how about we make some money together? How about you stop, uh, tr- you know, bringing in these patients or admitting these patients, you send them home? Or how about, you know, you give us these special prices? If you notice the two things that I just said, have nothing to do with somebody's actual healthcare or the problems that they have. And so it's not patient-centered anymore. It's not disease-based anymore. It's purely uh, um, payer mix now. You know, you're going to hear that word. Who's the payer mix, the insurance company, or how much is this? How much do we get reimbursed? Or, um, you know, is this person, can this person follow up uh, so that, you know, we can avoid an unnecessary admission? It's like that conversation is so ingrained in our system now I don't know how you resolve, um, how you can start moving away from that because they are becoming, uh, you know, they're digging their teeth in here in a way that's really hard to get rid of the system the way that's in place. And so I think 
if we can move it back to a community-based discussion saying, you know, the this is the rate of cancer in our community. Um, and what we noticed is that there's a significant amount of colon cancer. If we can start early interventions with respect to diet and, you know, uh, transitioning to healthier foods in the long run, in 50 years, we have less rates of cancer. We're doing much less uh, long-term, like we're spending much less on healthcare. People are healthier. They're moving around better. I think that's the approach that we need to take. And everybody's in agreement in terms of the, I think, the medical community of providers, of, you know, every and nutritionists. I mean, you could talk to anybody. They're all in total agreement. Um, you know, early prevention is better than dealing with it afterwards. Like secondary, primary uh, prevention is better than secondary and tertiary. But uh, I think the C-suite and the MBAs um, are not interested in that conversation because it's a significant amount of early investment. I think long term it will work out. Everybody can still make their money. But, you know, you want to end the quarter strongly as opposed to thinking about, you know, in 10 years or 20 years. That's the problem here. We're having that same problem in the fire service at the moment. I'll keep this brief because I talk about it all this time. But, you know, a lot of fire departments in America work 56 hours a week. And a lot of them with, with the understaffing at the moment, we're talking about an 80 hour a week, you know, once, twice a month. Yeah, it's insane. Um, and it's also just as insane as like the the uh, residency, the number of hours a, a resident doctor does. And you learn the origin story that it was a coked up surgeon that started that. And we never changed that either. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, so, but again, it's, it's the, cur- the courage to ask for a lot for that one budget year, knowing that you're going to save a huge amount of money for your city, your county, and in, in this case, improve the lives of your first responders. Now, if you look at um, the, uh, you touched on the military industrial complex, this is one thing I've asked a lot of our military members, you know, where are the checks and balances for stopping sending our young, you know, basically boys and girls off to war if there are people making a huge amount of money on uniforms and weapons and MREs, et cetera, it's the same thing to me with the medical system. If you had, and it doesn't have to be run by the government, but if you had a tax-based national health service where everyone got coverage, full stop, so not just the veterans or the poor or the elderly, but everyone, um, and now you have this, you know, this this bag of of coi- what they say coifers, whatever the term is, coins, anyway. <laughs> um, you're going to be driven to make your nation as healthy as possible so you don't keep dipping in that pot. Conversely, if you have a profession where there's a huge amount of money made for long-term prescription, for example, then, I mean, just taking the gloves off, if you're, if you're dead or you're healthy, you're no use to me. But if you're sick chronically, that's where the money is. So this is that, like you said, the courageous leader will say, look, we're going to put this in place. It's going to cost us a lot of money, but we will save money hand over foot. Um, you know, is that, have I got that phrase right? Is it hand over fist? Sorry, God, I'm really screwing up my metaphors today. <laughs> hand over fist, um, which then that money can go into schools, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we remove drug prohibition. Now, all of a sudden, we're not arresting every addict and sending them into prisons and freeing up the legal system, now we're saving money that way. But it's that courage in leadership that is absent. Everyone wants to look good in that budget year, in that election cycle, rather than actually doing what's best for the country. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, I think incentivizing that in some way is the only way that it's going to move forward because those interests are pretty strong. Like you said, military-industrial complex, the pharmaceutical industry, the medical industry, it's really, really hard to kind of be able to shift uh, their mentality. Absolutely. 
Well, again, you've been, you know, you've painted a beautiful story, as you said, of, of an Israeli doctor that saved your father's life and, you know, what you saw as far as that community um, amongst prayer in one of the, the perspectives in Jerusalem. Talk to me about October 7th, because again, there were absolutely some innocents killed in that attack. And then kind of walk me through um, how that went from a reaction to what you, you saw a shift into, you know, arguably genocide. Yeah. I mean, I think um, there's not a lot of debate within the humanitarian community, the international NGO community. Um, when it comes to uh, everything that's taken place, you view it through the same lens and you have the same sort of reaction to it. I think on October 7th, uh, I remember getting early reports about something taking place. And uh, I just remember having, you know, I, I remember being sick to my stomach because I just knew that this was going to be the beginning of uh, more heartache, suffering, and and lives lost. And so as details came out, I remember you know, just thinking to myself, like, this is horrible. I hope it doesn't get worse than this or worse than this or worse than this. And it's just, and I think the best way to put it is that, you know, I think October 7th was a series of atrocities that were committed against people uh, that began um, a long line of another series of atrocities committed against people. You know, that's the only way that I can understand it, especially as, you know, somebody who's in this, uh, the international NGO space. It's just, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's this vicious cycle of human beings suffering. And I think that's the way you need to approach um, this conflict if you want to be a part of the solution. Now, if you don't want to be a part of the solution, you can come up with a hundred different ways to describe what's taken place since October 7th and on October 7th. I'm not interested in, in hearing those people out, to be honest with you. I don't think that they are good for... Um, I don't think there. I don't think there's any benefit in trying to have those conversations now. I think if you want to talk about it in the future, when everybody's safe and there isn't a there isn't bombs being dropped and there isn't a starve, you know, a, a crisis in terms of starvation and a famine on the horizon, uh, I think that's fine. You can have that conversation then. But to me, it's like, I don't know. I mean, in that same spirit, that there needs to be a response to um, you know a medical code or somebody dying in, in, a, in a hospital. It's the same way that I look at this conflict right now. There is this pressing need to have the bombing and the killing stop, to feed the hungry, to stop the bleeding. Um, you know, there's this, I, we need to be in triage mode right now. And we're not, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about like a multidisciplinary discussion about, you know, should we use this or should we do that? Or um, what will happen if we did this? I mean, it's like, I've got a, I got somebody who, you know, I got to put a tourniquet on here and somebody's sitting there talking to me about what kind of insurance the patient has. You know, I think that's, that's how I feel um, this issue has, has devolved. Um, but I definitely feel um, that there's just been a lot of heartache. There's been a lot of suffering. There's been a lot of unnecessary, innocent people killed. And I don't even, I will never use the word both sides because I don't believe in both sides. I just think that any human being that is suffering or is killed is an absolute tragedy. I mean, that's how I grew up. That's what I was taught by my family. And um, I do want to do everything in my power to keep that the framework of the dialogue that takes place when we're talking about how do we respond? What do we do next? I couldn't agree more. And I've talked about this even, you know, with the demonization of Russians, plural, how many people are, you know, in Russia trying to just make, you know, make a living, put a roof over their kid's head and food in their stomach, have no interest whatsoever in invading the Ukraine and are now being, you know, tarred with the same brush. And more often than not, it could be slavery. It could be, you know, so many different things. 
it's not the whole country that's behind it. It's not the whole country that benefits. It's a few usually that are seeking power, you know, whatever it is, financial gain that are behind a lot of this. And then some people get swept up in the movement, don't realize even what they're doing. Some are just, you know, horrible people, full stop. But, uh, you know, and then you get this vicious circle that you can't win. Now, I've had quite a few people, you know, of military members from all over the world. And it would seem that there really is a deliberate attempt to minimize collateral damage when you're wearing an American uniform, Canadian, British, Australian, etc. And I hear this from, you know, from the voices of men and women who are also angry at, again, the industrial military complex, some of the things. So it's not like they're, you know, diehard pro-military can't say anything about it. When I think of what's happening now, I think of maybe you're in the street, someone punches in you in the face, and then and then you punch them back. And people watching go, well, that's fair enough. You got punched in the face. But then they go down, and then you start curb stomping them, and then you don't stop hitting and hitting at a certain point where that view changes to like, whoa, whoa, whoa that was way too far. So there was, you know, October 7th, excuse me, uh, yeah, October 7th happened. Initially, there seemed like there was a response to that. And again, I'm not talking size. There was a military response to that through the Palestinian eyes. Where was that shift from a response to you know what we've now have seen as a continuance of uh, of um, violence in in Gaza? Yeah. You, so you know, if you talk to any Palestinian um, who's older than 18 years old, they've seen this you know uh, issue before in terms of conflict in the Gaza Strip. They're not. Uh, you know, this is, this is not their first rodeo. Um, I think very early on, they all said the same thing. This is way different. This is different than any other conflict before. And in fact, um, Palestinians there know if there is something that takes place, like um, there is you know, any sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, I don't want to use October 7th as an example, because it was, you know, there's, that was also different. That had never happened before. But you know, in the past, there's always an understanding that for every action, there's a reaction, there's a reaction. And um, from their perspective, they feel like um, that they're always um, sort of subjected to these instant, like if you talk to Palestinians, it's very clear from their perspective that they are not the instigators. And that um, when you look at what happens here, it's always sort of this, um, you know, it's, there's, they're always kind of um, suffering from any sort of military campaign or bombing that takes place. They'd never seen anything like this before. Um, they were used to airstrikes and drones. They are used to certain neighborhoods being targeted. They're used to certain areas being known as this area is going to be a hot spot. They said very early on in October, it was clear that everything was going to change forever in Gaza. And I, I would ask, why, is, why do you say that? How do you, why would you say that? They said right away, um, everything was cut off. It was a switch button. So, you know, uh, Gaza Strip gets a lot of its water from Israel. There's a pipeline of water turned off. Uh, electricity, the Gaza Strip depends. It's energy. You know, they, they, are, they have 12-hour energy deficit every day. And the 12 hours of energy that they do get, they have some that service from their own power plant, maybe 10 15%. The rest comes from Israel. Um, there is, you know, total Israeli control of the borders and of the electromagnetic space. Those borders done, closed, the signal, telecommunications, shut off totally. And so right away, they, the, you know, the writing is on the wall in terms of, wow, some, this is way different. And it's actually very, very scary in terms of what's taking place. And then the volume of airstrikes 
that took place in the areas that were being attacked and people actually being told to flee all the way south, that's never happened before. Um, they, uh, you know, people were told, you know, usually they're saying this neighborhood in this city, everybody evacuate. And so they go to the adjacent neighborhood or they'd go, you know, uh, you know, somewhere nearby. And the anticipation is you come back and uh, hopefully your house wasn't destroyed in this bombing. This was all of the north of Gaza, where most of the people lived before October 7th, 1.7, 1.8 million people. All of you need to go to the south. And it's already a densely populated area. It's already crammed shut. And so people hearing that, they're like, what's, there was this panic, this confusion, this fear in the air. And so they knew uh, in terms of what they were hearing, that this was different. And then they started feeling it in the in the subsequent weeks, two to three weeks after, when the food shortage had become a bit like you're using up all of your local stores, all of the local inventory, whether it comes to medicine, food, water, gone, it's used up. And so you're starting to go to places and you notice the shelves are empty. And once that was coupled with this astronomical death toll that they had not seen in the 18 years that Gaza has been under siege, I think everybody knew that this was going to be a, ma- a catastrophe. And people started thinking in terms of, uh, is this the end for us in Gaza? Is there Are there going to be no Palestinians left in Gaza? Are we going to be forced to go to Egypt? Um, or are we all going to be killed in this process? Like, are, the, are, are there only going to be, you know, a few hundred thousand people left after this is all said and done? You know, I mean, all of the you have to keep in mind, they're hearing all of the language that's coming out of these uh, uh, some of these Israeli leaders, these like really uh, this really racist terminology that's coming out. You know, that that's also pretty, you know, uh, that's also like it was it was coupled with what was taking place on the ground. That was not something that people were um, were, were ignoring. I mean, yeah, there's always a lot of. Uh, racist rhetoric, angry rhetoric, aggressive rhetoric. But when you're coupling that with this massive military campaign that's super intense, uh, people are very scared. I mean, uh, you, you have the president calling you know Palestinians human animals. You have Bible verses being referenced about Amalek, and um, I mean, like it was it was overwhelming for for people. And I think each subsequent week that took place and the catastrophes kept unfolding, the massacres kept taking place, and the situation became more desperate. Um, I think. I think that's when other people started to realize what Palestinians were saying from the first couple of weeks of October. Like, well, this is actually like um, we've got something's got to stop. Something's got to change here. And so, yeah, that's uh, that, I, I think that was, you know, I think if you talk to any Palestinians here in the States, we've been glued to the TV um, for, you know, since October 7th. We've been watching everything unfold and it's only gotten uh, more depressing and hopeless. And, um, I, you know, I talk to people literally every single day and it's, it's the conversations repeating itself. It's like, I don't know what to do with myself anymore. I don't know what, you know, where we go from here. See what's so sad. And again, you know, rather than a reaction to the initial attack on, on October 7th, we were seeing something completely different. I had a, a, an incredible woman on Dr. O- uh, Edith Eager, who was an Auschwitz survivor. She had to dance for Joseph Mengele at one point. I mean, just, wow. and she became a psychologist and is just an absolute, you know, sweetheart of a woman. And through this whole thing, she's, I mean, I've been watching what, you know, what she's been putting out and it's the same thing. It's love, compassion, forgiveness. It's, it's trying to get back to what you saw in Jerusalem is the answer. But then when you hear about hatred and, you know, referring to people as animals, you can't help think about what the Jews suffered when they were in Germany and Poland back in the 30s, you know, where they were compared to rats and all these things. So, you know, we're starting to see a shift now. And this is the thing. 
I would imagine that most Israelis, you know, are not waking up every day with that kind of hatred in their heart. So have you had any inkling of, you know, possibly what the Israelis, you know, how it's being painted to them this time? I mean, I have I, I, Israelis and American Jews. I have seen um, an incredible amount of uh, compassion and um, empathy, and I found that I, I, I mean, it's so powerful to hear that. I mean, it's you know, for me, this is my people, and so um, when I, if I'm going to say something, or I'm going to make a post, or I'm going to speak at an event, um, I view it as. That's, I have to do that. I'm not doing anything special. It's a duty, and that's something that I have to. I have to, I have to speak on their behalf. When I see uh, you know, a group of uh, American Jews uh, talking about the plight of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, knowing that there's all of this history there, it's so powerful and moving. And to me, that's kind of one of those few moments where I feel like there is a hope for the future. When you see Israelis protesting in Tel Aviv, Telling the uh, telling Netanyahu to you know we need a ceasefire now stop the war in Gaza get the hostages home uh, allow humanitarian aid and when you see that in Tel Aviv and knowing the political climate there knowing that you know there's a war government literally there's a gov- there's a war government there for people to be able to stand up and say something like that um, that is what gives me hope of, that there can be a solution because everything else is not everything else is the opposite of that you know all of these different um, you know, military statements that are coming out from uh, the Israeli generals or the uh, minister of defense are saying stuff like, we're going to keep going till the end of 2024. This is going to go until 2025. We're going to make them pay and surrender. And, you know, um, you know, that to me is super discouraging. But when you see that there is this group of people that's also sort of fighting for the same thing, just a chance for this to stop and people to have a second to take a breath, um, that's the only thing I'm actually that's like keeping me going. That's giving me a, you know, this sort of um, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I hope that their voices are, are heard because they're being ignored just like I am uh, in, in terms of people who are uh, making the decision to, you know, uh, pull the trigger or drop the bomb. Well, I want to get to your trip over there. But before we do, because I think it's kind of pertinent to mention this now, the ICJ hearing in South Africa. As a little boy, I grew up, you know, where originally there was apartheid, you know, I'm seeing it on the BBC and then, and then we have Mandela and the clerk and some of these incredible, um, you know, this metamorphosis of humanity again. And again, post that, was it flawless? No, there was still violence. And again, some people turn around and go, see, like, no, but I mean, it was, it was never right in the first place. And this is, you know, I'm so proud to be British, but our history is horrendous. If you look at back at, you know, and again, was it the the average farmer from Bath, England, where I grew up? No, but there were people making decisions that were causing a lot of death and destruction and disease in different parts of the world. So talk to me about that. Now you have this, this country that has seen apartheid, that has seen oppression. Talk to me about the ICJ hearing. So I was there when the first um, when the opening statements in regards to whether or not the ICJ should hear this case were taking place. And um, I remember talking to one of the ICU doctors, Dr. Mohammed Gandil. I was in the Gaza Strip. I was at Nasser Hospital, which is now defunct and not operating anymore. But um, we were in the ICU and he was looking at me. He said I was he's like I was glued to my. Uh, I was glued to the television set in the lobby of the hospital because there's like one TV that gets Al Jazeera and uh, it's playing nonstop. And so everybody's kind of that's where they get their updates from. And he said, 
for the first time, I felt like somebody understood what I was feeling inside and was saying it out loud and was listing it in order. And so there was this idea that maybe we can have this, that we can have a conversation about what's taking place. And more importantly, that these people who are in the Gaza Strip, these Palestinians, that their suffering isn't ignored. I mean, to them, it meant so much that they had endured so much for at that time it was uh, three and a half months that they had seen so much horror that they had suffered that they had lost family members who had been killed people who are still in the hospital after being wounded in an airstrike houses being demolished schools not taking place um, looking for bottles of wa- bottles of water waiting in line for uh, a bag of flour that finally that that was being spoken in sort of an international arena that other people who had no connection to the place could hear their story. And I remember how moved he was to think that somebody who's not um, Arab, Muslim, connected to the region, was the one who was bringing that about. And the second part of this, the reason I mentioned that specifically, is because there was a, there was a, a significant amount of resentment by Palestinians towards uh, Arab countries that were in the in the region, these neighboring Arab countries. Um, it took it was South Africa that brought this up. It wasn't the neighbors. And you know, in um, anytime you speak in Arabic, especially if you watch any of these sort of political conferences, um, when these Arab countries talk about each other, it's brother, the uh, brother nation. You know, these are uh, the, these people are our like siblings. You know, like there's this common. Hey, we're all a part of this common group of people. And so for them, it was like you're next door. You can hear the bombs being dropped. You know, nothing is getting in. You speak the same language, so it's not like something is lost in translation. You you know, like you were hearing what we're saying, and um, there was no action. There was no movement. In fact, it was South Africa that brought this forward, and there was all of these other countries that had no, no connection to the land that were in support of this. And it was not until I think there was a lot of heat that the Arab League, which is uh, you know had all these countries in it, uh, that they eventually signed on. But it was it was too late. So it's kind of like this mixed bag of like, wow, somebody's hearing my voice. And I just can't believe it's not my boy. It's not my best friend or my, my brother that's doing it. So to, what was the result? What did, what did they basically uh, declare to the world? Yeah, I mean, I think it was about uh, understanding the scale of everything. It's not just, you know, the, the, if you look at um, uh, ABC News or um, CNN or Fox, which I try not to. I don't, I don't try to consume any sort of news media from um, these corporations. Well, they're not news um, anyway. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, the way it's phrased is Israel Hamas war um, or like, you know, um, it's just reduced to this idea of like, oh, it's a conflict. There's areas where the ba- there's a battlefield and these guys are going at each other. And, you know, it's it's an intense war. And that's not what's happening. I think that what the hearings in the ICJ did and what ev- even every subsequent uh, professional society or anybody that's putting something out, what it's doing is it's telling you that there's a, the scale that's taking place in the Gaza Strip is totally unprecedented. The World Health Organization, which was cited by uh, the ICJ lawyer, is saying this is the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. And it's telling you why that's the case. It's not just F-35s that are, uh, you know, airstrikes that are, or, or uh, uh, these tanks that are rolling in the leopard tanks or whatever it is. It's not just uh, there's military things, military operations taking place. It's 360 degrees. All parts of life in the Gaza Strip are disrupted. And at this point, it seems like it's going to be a permanent disruption. And that's something that, has, uh, that leads to a tremendous amount of suffering and pain.
So again, before we get to you actually being boots on the ground, um, educate us on the UNRWA, what it was in place to do, and then what happened during this conflict. You, so UNRWA is, is how we refer to it. Palestinians, were, you'll hear them say UNRWA. And um, it has been an agency that has been around since there have been Palestinian refugees. So, you know, 75 years it's created because there was this massive humanitarian crisis that took place back in 1948, where people were um, displaced. And uh, you're talking about close to 750,000. Anurwa doesn't just operate in the Gaza Strip, but operates in the West Bank, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria. There are Palestinian refugees in all of these areas, and it works towards trying to alleviate any sort of burdens that exist within that society. And so, as you can imagine, if you've been around for 75 years, that number of people who are looking for help has grown from 750,000 to 5 million. And uh, what Anurwa does is it is this lifeline for Palestinians, especially in the Gaza Strip. I mean, they do everything from schooling to shelters to uh, sanitation to water programs. I mean, they've got it covered. And that's something that they've been doing for a very, very long time. Um, they are employing over 40,000 Palestinians, if you talk about all of the regions, and 13,000 Gazans in, uh, in the Gaza Strip. And when the war took place, Anurwa was probably the only organization that was working every single day around the clock. People were fleeing from the Gaza Strip and they were trying to cram into one of their 155 shelters. I mean, at one point, their shelters were nine times over capacity. And if you visit these shelters, which are essentially some of them are um, uh, primary schools that have been converted into shelters, you've got 50 people in a classroom. You've got people right on the outside. You've got families hanging around everywhere. They try to do these programs for kids and you see a hundred kids show up and they're all like clapping in the courtyard. I mean, it's just this place that's totally overcrowded, like 900 people to a bathroom. And um, so, you know, that was the only place that people could reliably go to. Like you're going to go to a Norwa shelter. There might not be a lot of space, but if you find the place, no one's going to kick you out of there. No one's going to tell you to go. And every day they try to show up with different, you know, um, they, you know, they kind of have a box of items where you'd have a, a can of beans, you'd have some flour, um, some dates, and they would pass it out to all of these families. And they were also conducting these daily assessments that organizations like MedGlobal, where I'm a board member of, we were relying on these assessments to tell us what is uh, what are some of the needs? And so they're literally creating these assessments telling you this house was bombed yesterday. Seven people died in that house. 13 people were displaced. Two people are in the ICU. Um, there's this many, there's 1.3 million people who are in shelters. Um, a hundred thousand of them are in, um, are in, uh, they're called, um, uh, they're outside. Like they're not in, they're, there's no roof over their head kind of shelter. There are this many people in tents. There's this area that um, the water ran out. That was what Anurwa was doing during this war. Um, and so they played a vital role. And, I, you know, the impact that they've had on the lives of the people of Gaza is, you know, you just have to ask a Gazan. Uh, you can ask any person in Gaza and they'll tell you, OK, this is what Anurwa did. Anurwa, prior to October 7th, though, was always the subject of criticism and attack by Israeli officials. There was always something about Anurwa that, um, you know, didn't sit well with the Israeli government. And if you talk to people, I think it's the fact that it's existed for 75 years and it's still addressing the Palestinian refugee problem. So as long as Anur was around, there are still Palestinian refugees. There's still this question of what happens to these Palestinian refugees. And of course, as you can imagine, for any sort of occupying force or any force that's going to be responsible for these uh, refugees, um, it's a thorn in its backside. 
right? Like that's something you have to address that. And I think on October 7th, when they talk about individuals who worked for UNRWA, who participated in the atrocities on October 7th, I think you have to deal with that. You have to address it. I think the allegations are um, actually pretty, you know, they're pretty serious and they're disturbing. But I think um, that much of the response by the UN has been really appropriate. I mean, they fired all of these people right away. They're conducting an investigation. They're going to look into, they're doing an audit. They are, I mean, they took it very seriously. But uh, for the response to be, well, let's just let Anorwa shut down at the end of February. I mean, that is crazy. I mean, you are asking for a worse humanitarian catastrophe than that's, that's already taken place. And you're doing it in a way that's sadistic and cruel and there is no thought whatsoever, which is why I'm shocked that nine countries, you know, the biggest donors of Anorwa, including the United States, comes out and says, okay, we're going to stop funding it. And then Anorwa says, well, we'll be out of money by the end of February. And they say, ah, who gives a shit? Like, that's crazy. That's not the appropriate response. You can't do that. And I think... Um, I hope. I mean, we're the time that, you know, the there's supposed to be an investigation that's uh, the results are going to be released soon. We've got less. We've got just over a week left before the end of February. I hope that that, you know, doomsday doesn't doesn't occur. So the theory is because a few people possibly did some horrendous things that they're going to punish the entire people of Gaza. 2.3 million people. Absolutely. All oh. 2.3 million people rely on Anurwa for some for some service for some service and a million people are in their shelters. One million people are in their shelters. So if you had a corrupt American politician, it would be the same as, as basically punishing the entire United States uh, population. Yeah. Makes yeah, no exactly. fucking sense whatsoever. No way. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it was so, it was surreal hearing kind of the response uh, because, you know, every single uh, country that's kind of involved in the humanitarian relief and supporting Anurwa, they know exactly what they're doing, and they and they and they know and they say how vital and important it is. That's why they keep funding it with hundreds of millions of dollars every single year. So, you know, to turn that switch off, it's crazy. It is. Well, I want to bet get you, you know, boots on the ground in Gaza now. So, talk to me about Meg Global, what kind of organization they are, and then walk me through how you found yourself in Gaza last month. Yeah, I mean, Med Global is this organization. It's pretty. It's pretty young. It's been around since 2018. Uh, the guy who founded it is a, a Syrian American ICU doctor, Dr. Zahir Sahlul, and he actually works in my hospital. And you know, when the Syrian crisis took place, he was somebody who was getting into Syria, creating field hospitals. He, uh, him, and his uh, and the co-founder John Kaler, who's a pediatrician. Um, they were not willing to accept any bureaucratic delays. And so they were all about getting in, making sure that you can figure out what the people need, doing assessments, empowering local healthcare workers, and getting some healing started, getting care delivered. And, um, you know, born out of that Syrian crisis, they said there are all these other regions that need help. And so they started expanding into Yemen uh, because Yemen and Syria back in 2014 and 15 were level three emergencies. Um, they responded to the Sudan crisis, the Turkey earthquake, the Libyan floods, uh, the uh, Venezuela migrant crisis. They're uh, starting a program on the south of the border. Um, they have been to the Ukraine and have ongoing programs in Ukraine, uh, you know, working with the healthcare providers. So it's an organization that basically says we want to respond and we want to respond everywhere, you know, and be able to access everywhere. So they've been in the Gaza Strip for four years, and it's mostly been focusing on 
helping healthcare workers. I don't know if you've ever had experience with the butterfly machine. It's like this portable ultrasound that you can plug into an iPhone or an Android or an iPad. And, you know, one of the programs that we do is like, hey, we want to get these to these Gazan doctors and we want to be able to teach them how to use it because it costs, you know, a couple of thousand bucks, but it's, it can, it can do a lot and it can provide you with a lot of information and save them um, uh, a lot of time. And so that's kind of really what MedGlobal's focus is. It's really about decreasing the gaps uh, in healthcare that arise during conflicts or during any sort of crisis, natural disaster or, or humanitarian crisis, decreasing the healthcare inequities and trying to do that through the local healthcare workers, not just kind of showing up for two weeks, you know, snapping some selfies and then getting out of there. It's really about the local, you know, the local healthcare workers. And so um, I, that's kind of how my involvement started is I wanted an opportunity to go to the Gaza Strip and work with the doctors there. Um, you know, and I think pretty quickly, once you interact with those folks over there, you have, it, it changes you a little bit. You develop these relationships and they're, they're different over there. I mean, they are, uh, special people who are, uh, so, um, they're so smart and witty and funny. And, you know, you, you just really like, it's one of those, they're, they're these types of folks who, you know, when you're hanging out with somebody and you're having such a good time, you don't want, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to call it a night. I mean, that's really how I felt every time I went to Gaza. And so um, when after October 7th, when the war started, we were shut out of, of Gaza. Uh, you know, every single international NGO was not being given permission to enter into the Gaza Strip. We could not get people on the inside. And we have um, uh, an office there with local healthcare staff and just communicating with them. We're like, you know, they're telling us it's getting worse. It's getting worse. They were in Shifa Hospital, the main hospital that was um, under siege for 40 days. Our, our, our staff was there. And so... It was miserable knowing that you're sitting over here, not able to get any humanitarian aid in, medicine, supplies, and everything is totally shut down. And then hearing them just kind of tell you what's happening on the ground there. You're hearing about the food shortages, about the medicine shortages, about the hospital being attacked, about the MRI machine or the inter the, um, the radiology suite being damaged and destroyed. And you're like, okay, you're like adding it to, in your head about, well, there's a lot of work we got to get done and it keeps getting longer and longer and nothing is changing. So finally, at the end of December, um, we've been working on this for um, since November. We've been working with the World Health Organization with a bunch of other NGOs. And we're saying, when can we get in? Let's figure it out. And the WHO was coordinating with the Israelis and the Egyptians and they're trying to get a green light. At the end of December, they're like, OK, we think we can get you in January. Are you guys ready to go? Um and it's really kind of one of the few times that the WHOs relied on volunteers from other NGOs. They've got their own people and they've got enough people, but it, it was a situation where you can't really deploy people to the Gaza Strip. You're going to need volunteers, people who are willing to take that risk and go inside. And um, many organizations stepped up. MedGlobal was one of them. We sent a team of five doctors in early January and we left from Chicago. Four of us were in Chicago. One was in Philly. And we left and we landed in Cairo. And the next morning, uh, literally at dawn, we, we made our journey from Cairo to uh, Rafah. Um, it took us around 12 hours. And we finally were able to uh, get to the border. And uh, I was nervous the whole time because I just didn't want, I didn't believe it until we got in. I just did not, you know, knowing what we had dealt with in the past, I just thought something was going to, something was not going to work. And we were fortunate enough to be able to get in and carry 17 bags of, uh, medical supplies with us, just hand-packed, uh, trauma stuff, chest tubes, uh, everything that you can think of. We just were carrying it with us. And we got to the Egyptian border, gave them our passports, and we got in around two and a half hours later. And that was our first day in Gaza. 
So talk to me then, you know, you, you familiar with areas, you've obviously seen, I mean, Syria, you know, I'm sure was probably reminiscent with the, the damage that they experienced, but what was your person impression? I mean, you'd been there, you know, the year prior, you'd seen, you know, Jerusalem, you'd seen the, the converse. Now, what are you faced with when you're actually standing there? So the first thing that, that really stuck out is uh, once you cross onto the Palestinian side, uh, there's no electricity. Even their little passport control that they have, obviously no one is there. No one is manning it, um, but it's there's no lights on. And we're grabbing our stuff and we're getting into our van. And Rafah is a very rural town that prior to October 7th had 250,000 people. The day we showed up, there's around 1.2 million people in Rafah in this very small rural area. And you don't, you can't, all you can see is what the headlights of the van are showing you. And you see people everywhere, tents everywhere. Um, you, for me, it was not, I didn't remember, you know, it was not the Gaza that I had known. I mean, it was totally different from the very first kilometers of the Gaza Strip, of Rafah. It was already this bizarre place. The drone is circling overhead and such a loud noise. And that's, you know, you're just kind of thinking like, ah, you know, uh, what is that? And they're just telling you, oh yeah, that's the, that's the drone. Those are those are those are surveillance drones because they know the difference. Uh, you know, in Gaza, they they've become honestly like military weapons experts with especially with respect to aircrafts. They know they'll give you details about which ones are. So you hear that, and we get to the we get to the guest house, and then the next morning I'm I'm told I'm going to be tasked, or I had already known this, but I've said in the morning I'm leaving to go to Nasser Hospital, and Nasser Hospital is in Khan Yunus. It's about ten miles away from Rafah, the the border. And it was the center of the military campaign at that time. And so the Israeli military has started in the north, had gone to Beit Lahia, Beit Hanun, and then to Gaza City, and then to Deir al-Balah. And then now it was the, Khan Yunus was the focus. There's still airstrikes everywhere. And the first night when we were in Rafah, there was this loud bomb that exploded. And I literally woke up breathing fast, cold sweat. And they were like, yeah, that was one block away. A house was, was struck. It was an airstrike. And you're like... All right, this is different. I, I'd never been there while there was an active war going on, but also never been that close to something. I never served in any sort of military. And the next morning, they take us to Nasser Hospital, and it just slaps you in the face right away. There's people who are sheltering all around the hospital. Tents are all around the perimeter of the hospital. You walk into the emergency department. You walk into the area where people are registering. And there's people sheltering there, like in the hallway. They've got their little mattress, their families sitting down. You can barely move around without bumping into somebody. And then you walk into the resuscitation bay. And there's already 10 people there who are, who are had, by when I showed up, they were already been like uh, treated and uh, triaged and dispoed. Uh, and I go to put my stuff back up. I come back downstairs and there's our first patient. He was hit by a quadcopter, which is basically a drone that has two AR-15s on the side of it. And so he was hit um, uh, through the chest. He had a uh, hemonumothorax. So his, you know, he's basically got a bloody collapsed lung. And he is on the floor because we don't have any hospital carts. He's around 22 years old. And so I bend down, I get on the floor on my knees. The res there's a there's a, a resident, a Gazan resident who's with me, and he is uh, putting, you know, he's he's intubating him, putting him on a ventilator, and we're putting the chest tube in. And this and this kid ends up dying. You know, he codes. We do some CPR on him. We're doing some chest compressions, and he ends up dying. And I remember that I hadn't noticed this when I first showed up, but there were five people who were 
clearly not medics. I mean, they were, you know, not in scrubs. They were not uh, the, they were not paramedics who had brought him in. And it was his family. It was pretty clear. You know, he had a younger sibling and he had his mom and his dad there. And I remember the resident, because I didn't know what to say. I was just looking at them and they had seen us stop doing chest compressions. So they, you know, they didn't know what was going on. And the resident looks at them and he says, and, you know, he goes, his last words were, I bear witness that there is no God but God and that the Prophet Muhammad was his messenger. And I remember his dad in Arabic telling him, he really said that? That's what he said? And the resident said, yes, that those were his last words. And that's because, you know, and, and they were a Muslim family. It was clear faith was important to them. But it's like a sign. It's like a good omen that he you know, he died on his faith. He died believing in the values and the principles that were important to him. And it was like this small amount of comfort for the family. And then I watched them turn around, hug each other. They hugged the resident. They were crying. And then they grabbed their blanket. They put him, they put their son who had just died in that family, the, the, this large blanket that they had. The father, the mother, and, the, and his siblings carried the body out and they took him and they buried him. And that was my first patient in the Gaza Strip. That was the first person I had seen. They, there's, you know, I started, I think about them a lot because every time I think about that story, something new comes to mind. It's like they went and buried them, him by themselves. You know, they dug a grave and they buried him in there. And then they had to go and they went back to a tent um, and they had to think about where their next meal was coming from. They did not even get a chance to grieve their son. This event that is life-changing, that changes everybody's, anybody's life forever, they did not get a moment to sort of take a take a breath, think about it, remember him, have a memorial service, do any of that stuff. They were not afforded that opportunity. And so, you know, there are, you know, for me, that was hard. That was the first day. And I remember feeling very overwhelmed and really relying on the fellow, my fellow colleagues, just kind of guiding me on how to process everything and take it step by step. They were kind of like, get into survivor mode, start thinking about what you could do for the next person. Don't, spend too much time about this because it will kill you. Like you will lose it if you, if you're just sitting there thinking about all of this. And that was the, that was the tone for the rest of the month of mass casualty event after mass casualty event, treating people on the floor. I did more trauma procedures in my three weeks at Nasser hospital than I've done in my entire career. And again, I trained in Detroit and practice in Chicago. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was nonstop and I was working, I slept in the hospital. So I had a call room in the hospital and, um, I remember we would get up like five or 6 AM, go downstairs to the ER, come back upstairs around 6 PM. And just, if there was, if they needed me, there'd be an intercom and they would just say ER doctor to the, uh, to the resuscitation bear. They'd say trauma surgeon, or they'd say, you know, vascular surgeon. That's how they would communicate people during the nighttime hours. So people can try to get some rest, but it was nonstop. It, it really was, it was unrelenting three weeks. And then, um, you know, I think there's a lot of moments that I still uh, think about and I'm still trying to process. I think it was a few days ago, there was a horrific video of a mother and her child being killed by a sniper. You mentioned about this drone killing this 22-year-old. And again, maybe he was, you know, shooting at it and he was, you know, a resistance fighter and maybe it was a legitimate kill. I mean, we, we don't know. However, correct me if I'm wrong, 14,000 children killed now? 12,000, yeah. 12,000, my apologies, 12,000. So clearly there appears that it's not a targeted attack over and over again. What, what are the, 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 the people of Gaza seeing as far as, as the tactics? Is it purely a, you know, 
a reaction to a resistance fighter or are they seeing just randomized killing left, right and center? Because that's what it seems like. Yeah, I think the people of Gaza, this is everybody shared this with me, um, whether they were physicians or internally displaced people or patients. They are convinced, and I think the evidence will um, w- supports this, that there's just a systematic clearing of the Gaza Strip that's taking place, starting from the north and heading all the way to the south. And everything in between that deals with life, whether it's a human being or a hospital or a, um, uh, a school or a university, all of those things are being destroyed and being attacked. So there is no, um, you know, there, that's the objective to them. That's what they're experiencing. When you are, um, I was in the hospital for three weeks and the Israeli military were conducting their operations around 10 blocks away from the hospital. And every single day that was getting closer and closer to the hospital. And it was clear to me that the movement was going east to west or west to east. And it was just about all of Khan Yunus. And I, and I know that just before they had showed up to Khan Yunus, they were in Deir al-Balah and they had done the same thing. Neighborhood by neighborhood, street by street, building by building. It was all about clearing it, controlling it, whatever it was. And so I don't think it's appropriate to characterize it as just um, going after Palestinian fighters. Because if that's the case, um, we would not be seeing the scale and the and the amount of death and destruction that we're seeing. But if you look at Khan Yunus, and I was there, I mean, there it's literally block by block house by house, school by school, eventually to the point where it gets to the hospital. And then the hospital is surrounded, the hospital is raided, and all of these people that were there in Khan Yunis were forced to flee to Rafah. So Rafah now has 1.6, 1.7 million people. When I showed up, it had 1.2, 1.3. And so all of those people came from Khan Yunis because it was the next phase of this. And so I don't really, um, I, I think, I think it's important for people to realize that um, the way that the Gaza Strip looked before October 7th, um, that was, the purpose was to change how it looked and to change it in a way that um, you know, was satisfying to the Israeli military. And I, and I think that's how they're carrying out their objective. And I, I don't think, I also don't think many of their military um, leaders now, whether it's um, Gallant or um, the spokesperson for the IDF, I don't think they... Um, disagree with that notion. I think they have supported saying that they want to change. That they're not going to go back to a pre-October seventh. Um, they talk about things like creating a buffer zone and purposely detonating, you know, infrastructure along, you know, with a one-kilometer buffer zone from the border of Israel and purposely destroying these areas. Um, they talk about cutting off the electricity and the water. So I mean, it's like, you know, it's not like this is a secret. Maybe maybe uh, politicians will try to spin it differently and say, hey, we're doing everything we can to, in this way or whatever it is. But um, I think the facts really speak so loudly about what's taking place there. Um, you know, that story of the, I think it was actually a grandmother who and, and the kid that was shot, um, you know, that were sniped. Um, it's, it, I, I can tell you that there are hundreds and hundreds of similar stories like that. And one that recently just came out that I definitely want to share because it, it you know, um, I know it'll resonate with you because, you know, fire, fire, par- paramedic. But, you know, there was this story about this girl in Gaza City. Her name is Hind Rajab. She's six years old. Her and her family had decided to go to the South. And so there was two cars. She was in the car with her cousins and her uncle and aunt. And then her mom and dad and her siblings were in the other car. And one of the cars was hit by the Israeli military and was struck by it. The other car got away. 
Um, uh, their car was damaged. She was injured in it. Um, her uncle and her aunt were instantly killed. And her cousin, her older cousin, had survived but was was clearly injured. And so she had a phone and she was able to call. She, her mom was able to call that phone. She answered it and found out that her daughter's still alive, that the car had been hit. And they basically had communicated with the dispatchers from the Palestinian Red Crescent, who was able to get in contact with Hind. And so uh, the dispatcher is staying on the phone with Hind for three hours because they're trying to coordinate to get an ambulance out there to get these two first responders. And um, they get the green light from the Israeli military. The the Israeli military says, okay, we'll let you uh, go and rescue this girl who's still alive. And it's taking a long time. So it's telling me, because you have a three-hour call, it's telling me they're trying to get somebody out there. You're not, you know, I know that that coordination is taking place. And the the lady on the phone is saying, we're working on it. They're working on it. They're working on getting somebody out there. as She's trying to comfort this girl who's scared. And then you hear on the phone, him say, okay, please don't, don't shut the phone. Uh, I see the tank. And then the the dispatcher saying, how close is the tank? She's like, it's really, really close. And I'm scared. She's like, okay, don't worry. Is anybody getting out of the tank? She's like, don't worry about it. Um, You know, she's trying to comfort her. And finally they get the green light and these, Two guys from the Palestinian Red Crescent, both paramedics, they decide to make their way towards her. And their car is struck by something, whether it's a warship or a, or a drone or a, or a F-35. I don't know what it was, but you can see the remnants of the car. It's totally destroyed. They're both killed in the process. And then several days later, they find, they're able to identify the car that Hind was in. And of course, she's dead. And so to me, it's like clear that um, this is not about um, uh, kind of uh, an insurgency or a counterinsurgency or resistance fighting or any. This is just uh, another fi- another step uh, in terms of trying to make sure that this area is cleared of the people that are in it and moving them in a certain direction and uh, acquiring more land and uh, having a presence and whatever it is, whatever you have to say about that. There's so many stories like this. And it's just so, it's something that uh, I think is... I hope it's not. I hope that we can continue to share their story because somebody like Hind, we have to talk about what happened to her. I mean, you can hear her voice, six-year-old, on the phone with the dispatcher. I mean, that's, you know, what happened to her is not acceptable. And that's why I really think it's important to share what's going on there because I'm worried that it's also going to happen to Rafah next because there's still one government in Gaza that has not been cleared yet, and it's Rafah. And everybody who is able to go to Rafah, is in Rafah right now. I heard the tapes of, of him, and it was, I mean, as a parent, doesn't matter where you're from, to imagine that your child is surrounded by two corpses and, you know, ultimately three, and is fearing for their life as, you know, opposing military roll by, and then the rescuers are blown up right in front of her, and ultimately, you know, she dies from whatever it was that she ultimately, because it was about 10 days, wasn't it, when they finally found her, have I got that right? Yeah, so maybe she starved to death, maybe she, you know, dehydration, what a fucking horrible way for a child to go. And then you multiply that by 12,000. 12,000 children had some sort of horrific death, because, you know, obviously none of them were natural causes. You know, it really kind of, you know, underlines that. Now, I want to get to the impact of, of, you know, all of this on medicine in general. But just before we do, one of the claims was the the reason hospitals were being attacked or bombed was because Hamas fighters were hiding there in secret tunnels. I'd love to just give you the mic and, you know, have a response to, to, to that um, accusation. Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, I saw none of that. I didn't. 
Um, and nobody, nobody supported that claim. And I tell you, it, well, for what it's worth, and I know people don't take this, won't take this uh, to the bank, but uh, I found that the people of Gaza and the healthcare workers were uh, brutally honest about everything. Um, they are very clear about what they need and what they don't need. They're not just putting their hand out, for example, and saying, well, give us everything you can. They were t- there were times where they'd be like, you know, we actually, we're actually good on this. We don't necessarily need you guys to um, spend any money and support this program or this device. And all of them had said that this was not a real thing taking place. Um, are there tunnels under the ground in the Gaza Strip? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think anybody denies that. Are they are they all over the place? I'm sure they're everywhere. I'm sure anywhere they can build a tunnel, they built a tunnel. I'm not even going to deny that. There's no way to, I have no interest in kind of um, uh, trying to even explain why a tunnel is there in the first place. There, the, the, prop, the, the fact of the matter is they exist. But if you're telling me that, oh, it's because, uh, oh, oh, these hospitals are legitimate to go after because there might be tunnels under them or that there is some sort of operations taking place, I'm going to call BS on that for one reason. And it's kind of what I alluded to earlier. It just seems like you're going from the north to the south. And the, and when you approach the nearest hospital, you decide that that's the hospital that needs to be shut down because it's a, it's a, you know it's being used for military purposes. Not all of these hospitals happen to be used for military purposes. All of these hospitals are not treating patients there. All of the healthcare providers that are working there are lying. Nothing has come from any of these raids or the shutting down or the damage of these hospitals. Nothing serious has been presented. I mean, the, the the only thing that we've seen is Shifa Hospital. They said that there was this tunnel that's in that's near the perimeter of Shifa, not even under it. They found they exposed that tunnel. Okay, the tunnel is there, and that's fine. And there's plenty of people who have commentary on that. By the way, I'm not going to get into about oh, you know, this tunnel has been here since whatever time. But you know, at the end of the day, let's play devil's advocate and say, hey, there are tunnels with the with the people that you are trying to target that you are at war with under these hospitals. In what universe would anybody be okay with attacking a hospital and then suddenly 12 uh, pediatric or NICU babies who are depending on incubators are suddenly at risk of dying? Or 38 for that matter, like it was the case in Shifa. You know, I've been following the story of those 38 kids that were in that were in the uh, neonatal ICU at Shifa Hospital. Seven of eight of them died when the electricity was cut to that hospital. That alone should we should be raising alarms and say, hey, let's reconsider this. I know you guys want to do your I know you want to do a military operation here and you have an objective and you want to secure whatever it is that you're trying to secure. You're trying to unveil or attack. But let's think about this, because eight babies just suffocated to death because they they're, they're you know, the electricity was cut off. Let's figure out a different way. But that, that didn't stop there. In fact, there's solar panels on Shifa. They were hit by, uh, you know, before the raid that took place at Shifa, which for people who don't know, is the is the major hospital in the Gaza Strip. Everybody in the Gaza Strip has needed Shifa for whatever medical need there were. All of your specialists are there. All of your equipment is there, your CT scanners, your MRIs, your x-rays. It's all over there. And when I would go to work in the Gaza Strip, I would go to Shifa because all the, all the doctors would meet me there and we'd do our trainings there and we'd see patients there. So they hit the solar panel on the top of the roof of the Shifa hospital. And in the process, uh, there was a, girl, a young girl, I can't remember her age, but she was less than 14 years old, and she was killed in the process. And the idea was, you know, no energy, no electricity can go to Shifa. We needed to be total blackout. Well, you know, I mean, are we, we're not, 
I don't think that we should be naive enough to not consider the consequences of cutting off electricity to the major hospital that exists there. And what, you know, what that means, not just for people who are depending on a medical device like a ventilator that needs electricity, but just being able to keep the lights on in the operating room or to be able to have an elevator function so you can move somebody who is bedbound from the fourth floor to the second floor. So when you see that every single hospital clinic is being, is, is being targeted in a geographic way, I'm sorry, I'm not going to, I can't just buy into this narrative that, you know, there's this. Uh, huge military headquarters underneath. And if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, I will apologize for that. And I will make sure that everybody's held accountable that says, hey, you guys were stupid. How do you not know that this was the case? But I still, it does not change the fact that I say, keep the hospital functioning, keep treating the patients, keep letting them come in, keep letting us do our job. It's not going to change my position on that. You know, I, I, and that's, that's the, I mean, are we crazy now? I mean, I talked about this recently, but I can't get any medical association to support uh, like any sort of healthcare protections or ceasefire now language. You know, back in May, I went to DC with the American College of Emergency Physicians and we were going to our congressmen, our senators, and we were saying, you know, doctors in America, frontline workers, uh, nurses, uh, paramedics, we should become a part of a, pr a protected class. Literally, we said it's like first responders should be a part of a protected class in the sense of if somebody goes after us, and I'm sure you've been in some compromising situations, if somebody decides that they're going to get violent for whatever reason, there should, you know, we should have some sort of protections like uh, flight attendants or pilots. So that's what we were arguing for. The natural conversation for me as somebody who's watching this taking place in Gaza was, hey, we supported this in May. Why don't we think about supporting this now for global, all global healthcare workers? They should be protected. They should not be targeted. They should be able to practice without be fear of targeting. And I thought that it would be simple enough, but no, I was rejected every single way, any place that I took this, the conversation could not get off the ground. It couldn't be presented in front of the boards of these organizations. And, you know, these organizations took stances on Ukraine. I just don't know why they can't take a stance on Gaza. No, I mean, there's there's so much inequity. If you look at Hawaii, let's go back to, you know, an American territory for a second. I mean, those poor people got, you know, pittance in response to them being raised, their entire community being raised. And yet, as you said, we're sending, you know, billions overseas. Um, Muhammad was telling me about, you know, the the need, the medical need over there. And, and just literally, I think two or three days ago, I saw a video of a, a surgeon just in tears. And I think he tried to perform surgery without anesthetic. He had no anesthesia. And then the, it said the young guy died of, died of pain. Now, I'm sure that was, you know, a contributing factor. But um, talk to me then about, so you've got, you know, Gaza being raised, you've got power being turned off, water being turned off. You know, and, and I'm assuming that every time a hospital is destroyed, most of the equipment goes with it too. So where are we at now in February 2024 from a, from a medical professional point of view with so many people and so few facilities and staff? Because, I mean, you lost so, doc so many doctors, nurses, firefighters, paramedics, not to mention journalists and other people that were targeted in this process. Where, you know, wh what, what is the kind of landscape right now as we talk? It is um, uh, in the state, it's a, the healthcare system uh, in its entirety has collapsed. And what I mean by that is that you have now 13, maybe 14 out of 38 healthcare facilities and hospitals that are partially functioning. Those 13 or 14 um, have, uh, are not able to perform any sort of specialty service or care. Um, your biggest hospital 
uh, Nasser Hospital um, has been rendered uh, uh, non-functional by the WHO because the electricity is still out and um, no services can be performed at this hospital. It was one of two referral hospitals. The other referral hospital in Rafah, the European Gaza Hospital, is three times over capacity. And so essentially the system is, cannot be depended on to perform any sort of function. And so um, if there is an urgent need there is, uh, you know, there is a random chance that you'll be able to see a doctor and then he'll have what he needs to treat you or he'll have what he needs or, or she needs to be able to address the situation. But more likely than not, you will have complications because you're not able to receive the care that you need. More likely than not, um, you will uh, suffer a consequence of this illness or injury that will affect you for the rest of your life. That's what I mean when I say the healthcare system has collapsed. You mentioned how many people have been killed. Um, there are over 350 healthcare workers that have been killed in this assault. You're already talking about an area that didn't have enough healthcare workers and that many of its uh, people, there was a brain drain that existed where um, people were leaving the Gaza Strip to professionally develop themselves, whether it's in healthcare or some other field. Then we talk about these buildings being damaged, um, but also there are um, fractures that take place, as you can imagine, with airstrikes and with uh, uh, sniper bullets and with uh, tank shelling. Orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons um, don't have the metal material that they need because no metal since October 7th has entered the Gaza Strip. So I saw a kid while I was there whose jaw, he had a comminuted fracture of his mandible just totally shattered to pieces. And he needs a plate to fix it. So the ear, the ear, nose, and throat doctor, the OMFS surgeon, needs a plate to fix it. There has not been any plate that has entered the Gaza Strip to October 7th. So that kid sat there, and he had to get a tracheostomy tube because he could not uh, swallow or breathe through his mouth. And so he already is suffering from complications that's going to affect him for the rest of his life. But it's so much so that he's also taking up a bed in the hospital where this young guy would have done just fine if, if you were able to get the plate in his mouth and get him going. He'd, be, he'd do totally fine. He'd live a normal life after that. Um, same thing with vertebral fractures in the spine. Same thing with hip fractures. Uh, all of these things are not, you're not doing any of these services. And so these people are languishing in the Gaza Strip, not able to get any sort of care that they need. What about primary care stuff? What about communicable diseases like high blood pressure or diabetes? N uh, not enough medicine for those diseases are getting in. So these people are totally neglected. And that's why the World Health Organization has said more people are going to die from non-trauma injuries in Gaza because the healthcare system collapsed. So my dialysis patient, is not, they're, they're not getting uh, the dialysis that they need. And I saw a 15-year-old die because he couldn't get enough dialysis. He was getting it twice a week for two hours at a time. He needs it three times a week for four hours at a time. So he's not getting that. He died. His potassium got so high because we weren't able to give him the dialysis that he needs that he died from that. So he's not in that number, James, right? Like he's not in that number of people who were killed in this conflict, but he was killed in this conflict. I mean, that's, you know, that's the way to, that's the way to think about it. And I don't even, you know, I, I don't even know where to begin with the malnourishment that's existing amongst the pediatric patients there now. The UNICEF came out and said one in six kids in the north of Gaza needs um, nutritional intervention. What they mean is these kids actually need a hospital to get the, to, to get the nutritional status up to a, non, to a safe level, to a non-dangerous level. One in six kids. You know, this is, that's in the north of Gaza. 
we're not even talking about kids who have who are you know who we know are going to be malnourished on a level where they can still kind of you know walk around and be okay. Um, but what happens to those kids in one month or in two months or in three months? You know, um, if you're hearing there were 15 aid organizations that came out and said, um, if we stay at this point until May, if nothing changes until May in terms of the supplies of food that are getting in and the water that's getting in, we're going to reach famine level for the majority of residents in the Gaza Strip if we keep things the way that they are. And so, um, you know, the final thing I'll mention is pregnant women. I mean, I think um, that's another sort of uh, hidden tragedy in all of this. I knew a doctor, she gave birth to her son and she had a C-section. And she said after she had the C-section, four hours later, she was kicked out of the hospital because they needed that bed for the next lady who was coming in. And so, I mean, anybody who's had surgery and had stitches or any woman out there who's had a C-section or even had a natural birth, to be, to leave the hospital with your newborn baby four hours later, I mean, it's I, I don't know how she did it. I honestly have no idea how she did it. She's sitting there smiling and um, Dr. Uh, uh, Sahlu, the founder of the organization, is carrying her son, took a picture with it. But it's like, I can't believe what she had to do. I can't believe that she was in that position. You know? And that's, you know, every aspect of life has been damaged or disrupted, but healthcare, it's collapsed. And uh, I don't know how we'll rebuild it. I know it's going to take a decade to get back to some some degree of like a functioning system. And I heard you in, in the interview on... Um the uh, the television interview that you did talking about as well the the fact that none of these hospital workers are getting paid so again we're thinking oh well at least they'll get to go home and you know have a nice dinner with their family but talk to me about that as a as a you know a, a an urban area is being destroyed periodically therefore goes homes i mean literally probably i'm assuming the buildings that would issue paychecks i mean the whole thing so talk to me about the heroism and selflessness of a lot of these people that are still holding the line this is, uh, this is why I fell in love with the people of Gaza. This is why they're the best of us. They are amazing human beings. Four months, no pay, 24-hour shifts, not collecting a single dollar are what all of these healthcare workers are dealing with. Every single person from top to bottom. It's not like the director of the hospital is still collecting checks. No, the director of the hospital, who is a general surgeon, who is staying and sleeping in the hospital, has not received any money for doing his job. And they're showing up day in and day out and I swear it has not affected how they treat people. You would never guess if you saw the trauma surgeon, Dr. Khalid, who is in Nasser Hospital, who's still there, you would never guess that his family was also staying in tents and that they were looking for when they can get where they can get a can of tuna from just by how he's talking to the kids there and telling them jokes and rubbing their heads. You would never guess if you, if you based on how they see some of these victims who are dead on arrival, how it affects them. You'd be like, wow, I mean, like you'd think at this point they're just sort of indifferent about it because it's so traumatizing. They still think about these people and they still hug their families and they still say nice words to comfort the mother of the grieve who's grieving over her son. Um, they still are protecting people's dignities, like somebody who's dead on arrival and their, sh and their clothes are sort of ripped up. They're still grabbing a sheet, which is in short supply, grabbing like the sterile sheet and covering them up and kind of wiping the blood off of their face and wiping, you know, some of the debris uh, so that their families can recognize them. It's, they're incredible, incredible people. And they're so, uh, they're so witty and smart. Like we would sit there and be sitting outside of the emergency department. I'd have five residents and nurses around me and I have some of these, uh, some of these surgeons and they're just asking questions like, what do you guys do in this situation? Or how do you treat, um, how are you guys treating COVID patients? Or what did you, you know, how is the system like in Chicago? Uh, how do you, how do people register to come in? How do they tell people that they're, you know, they're like so curious and hungry for more knowledge and figuring out what to do. And I remember 
you know, there's this one case where we had um, this guy who I could not tell if he still had a pulse. I mean, he was a he was a bigger dude. He had been involved in an airstrike. I had the ultrasound, but I just could not know for sure. And, you know, his wife is right there. She's like, I think I saw him move his hand. I think, you know, I mean, she's like, you know, really kind of pushing it. And I remember I looked at the uh, the surgeon and I said, you know, I, I'm just not sure. Honestly, I can't. I don't I, I don't know because he's trying to move him to the to the to the operating room. And he was going to occupy a, a theater, uh, you know, for this guy. And so I really want to make sure that, you know, we're resuscitating him enough if we need to. We start compressions if we need to. And he's like, he's like, all right, don't worry about it. He, this guy grabs everybody that he can. They start rolling the guy towards the operating theater. And he himself is the one who's kind of making sure that he can, that he's doing chest compressions on top of this injured patient. You know, it's like in his head, if that's the right thing to do, we're going to do it. And I'm, I've been around people here in the States, in the States who have called codes on things way less uh, um, uh, confusing than this, who have basically given up and thrown in the towel in something that's uh, you know more of a gray area with all of the resources in the world and no concern about um, sort of kind of uh, uh, making sure that you know you're not occupying a space uh, for somebody else that may you know may benefit from it. And so um, you know I think I uh, I got an update from Dr. Khalid. He's the he's the trauma surgeon at Nasser Hospital. Um, he, the hospital was raided. We thought he was abducted. He, he sent a message saying, nope, I'm okay. Everything's all right. And then the next thing he told me was, he told all of us, there's a big group, WhatsApp group of physicians. He said, please guys, see if we can get a way to get Nasser hospital back and running. If we can get the lights back on, I still have patients here. I'm not leaving my patients. I mean, everybody had fled. Everybody was gone. Other physicians had left and nurses had left. And you know what? I think they absolutely should have made sure that you got to leave, get your family safe, take some of these patients with you. This guy stayed in the hospital and was trying to figure out how to get the lights back on. After, after the hospital being raided, he put a chest tube in an OR nurse that got shot. He was the guy who put the chest tube in this, in this nurse. He is uh, you know, just an amazing human being. And you know what's funny? I'll share this. And he's, he, he might get mad at this, but I just want to give you a glimpse of who this person is. But I come back and he sends me a message. He said, I hope you got back safely. I hope everything's good. He's like, you left at the right time because, you know, the hospital is going to be attacked. And so uh, he's like, you know what? I heard, you know, I heard you guys are going to keep bringing medical teams. I have a request. I said, of course, anything you need. I'm, I, I don't know what he, I don't know if he's going to ask for money. I don't know if they're going to ask for supplies. He's like, look, m- us, me and some of the, uh, you know, the OR team, the surgeons and the, and the OR nurses and the OR techs, he goes, we smoke. All right. And we've not been able to get any any cigarettes or uh, or vape pens in. If there's any way you can send a couple of vape pens with us, it would be you know, it would do us a huge favor. I'm like, of course, we can get you guys some vape pens. I don't care if I'm a doctor, if you need a cigarette. I mean, like, it's the least we can do for you. I thought, you know, you think that they're in such this desperate situation that they were going to, you know, ask for something that'd be a little more. Uh, but even then he was tiptoeing around it. He's like, I'm embarrassed. I don't know how to ask you this, please. You're like, you know, these guys, man, they're looking for things to keep going, to keep doing their job. And he gets nothing out of it. You know, he's literally getting no, not a single dollar. He's he's not getting meals. He doesn't get three square meals a day. Um, that's the type of people that are there. And, you know, that's why it makes me want to keep moving forward. I'm, you know, if I'm exhausted or I'm depressed on a certain day after seeing some of these videos, I think about them and I'm like, you can't, you cannot take a second. You got to do something. You got to be able to help their situation because they deserve it. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, what would you say to everyone listening? How can we help? Whether it's just a, a person with an ability to, you know, 
call someone or do a post or whatever it is, however big or small, what do we need to do? I mean, obviously, I think you've done an incredible job kind of educating us all on everything, you know, and it's come with this, this really altruistic, compassionate lens that you brought to it. But this does need to stop and we do need to, you know, support the people that are left. I mean, I can't even imagine you know, logistically how, how, you know, you even recover from this and these poor, you know, all these people that are displaced and all the, the horrendous things that have happened, but you have the microphone now to the world, at least, you know, the audience of the behind the shield podcast, maybe not the entire world, but you know, what can we do now? Yeah. I, I mean, I, it starts for me with counteracting and fighting against the dehumanization of the people in the Gaza Strip of Palestinians. There is a deliberate uh, effort by mainstream media to refer to kids that have been killed as minors, right? They don't say children because of the, the emotion that it invokes or saying that they are dead. You know, this many people are dead, but these people have been killed in a war. They've been killed as a result of a military. And so for me, one thing is to kind of elevate some of these stories. I mean, like, James, you listen to the Hind uh, audio. Um, to me, I'm sure that, you know, being able to get that out there will change how people view the situation. Just people kind of understanding that they're people just like us. They have a, you know, they want to laugh and they want to, uh, you know, uh, have a great life and build their own house. And, you know, all these sorts of things that a normal person would want. That's important to me. And whether that manifests as an op-ed in a local newspaper or a social media post or even a, a art or a poem, any, any sort of way that we're able to humanize them, I want to be able to be a part of that. And I think everybody uh, can, can do their own touch, even if it's talking to coworkers or friends or family and saying, sharing one story, I think makes a huge difference. The second part of this is kind of this, the, on the advocacy level, look, our government here in the United States uh, has not done uh, has not done right in terms of the humanitarian situation. They have actually been on the opposing side of this. And so just speaking to elected officials in a way that's saying, focusing on the humanitarian relief, calling for a ceasefire from a humanitarian perspective, doing whatever we can is important. And I'll give one example of a success story. Senator Merkley from Oregon. He's had Palestinians in his community. He's had people who care about what's going on there, reach out to him multiple times, badger him. He's now not only calling for a ceasefire, he wants to bring Palestinian kids who need specialized medical care to Portland so that they can get the care that they need and then send them back. I mean, something like that, I think, is incredible because that humanization part, if you sh these kids start showing up on the States and you get to see the smile on their face, that's going to make a difference in your life. I mean, you're not going to be okay with them just going back to the status quo. You'll want that situation to change. And then finally, I think, you know, sort of the other part of this is supporting organizations that are on the ground. Um, there, you'll hear a lot of people talking about Gaza, but there are people, there are organizations that are on the ground that have staff from the local uh, healthcare population that know exactly how to get the little bit of aid that's coming in where that needs to go, whether that's Pampers, uh, tents or food like Anera does. I mean, they do an incredible job. Or it's medical care services like MedGlobal or Palestinian American Medical Association or PCRF. Or it's uh, Anerwa, supporting Anerwa, who's being defunded. You know, I mean, I think understanding that there's organizations on the ground that are working, helping that uh, financially or sharing it or volunteering in any way you can, I think attacking it from these three perspectives is going to be the solution. Number one, realizing that there are human beings on the ground suffering. Number two, talking to decision makers. And then number three, supporting the efforts in recovery and rebuilding and relief. I mean, I think if we can do all of these things, I think we can be, at least we can say that we are not sitting idly by when, 
you know, the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II is taking place. At least we can kind of say, I'm going to do my part and I'm going to try to convince as many people as possible to do their part. What I see is one of the uh, barriers, and this is all of us, you know, we all have to look in the mirror, is there's a real aversion to saying, you know what, I was wrong. And I think it, you know, the knee jerk of the first few days was like, oh, it's kicking off in Gaza again. And, you know, people might have been like, and I'm on side A. But then, you know, you've got to acknowledge that there was a shift. Like you said, this time was different. And it's, you know, you can't, you know, die on your sword on that one side. You've got to have the courage to go, you know what? On this day, this is how I felt. But now I've seen that it's different. You know, and if 12,000 dead children, won't sway you, then, you know, maybe you need to look in the mirror a little bit longer. But, um, you know, I, I think it's it's so important. Each of these are actionable things. Everyone can, you know, reach in their pocket and give a little bit towards whichever, you know, uh, nonprofit they want to contribute to. Each of them can do something towards the, you know, the humanizing of these men, women, and children that we're losing in Gaza. So, you know, I think it's, it's actionable and, and I hope every single person listening to this does exactly that. So where can people find MedGlobal and make donations there? Yeah, medglobal.org. Um, we're on, we're on, you know, we have a website. We're on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we're, you know, we're, uh, we're, we have a strong online presence. Yeah. Beautiful. And then what about you? If someone wants to reach out to you personally, where are the best places? Instagram, for sure. I don't have a lot of social media and I just got back on because of this. Um, you know, I was sort of silent. So you can find me on Instagram. That's the easiest way to, to reach out to me. It's my first name. Uh, actually, it's TH, my last name, MD. So if you can, if you search my name, you should be able to find me. And I'm always looking to collaborate with people, talk to people, have conversations, even questions or somebody disagrees with something I said. I'm, I'm always interested in hearing that, you know, and um, I think that's I think it's it's the way that I grow. So, you know, I, please reach out. Well, there. I want to say thank you so much. I mean, this this is the kind of conversation that I think we, including myself, need to hear. You know, when you are not from a place, you can't just be given a sliver of information and go, "Oh, I I, I know the whole story." You know, so you've led us through so beautifully and given such a you know a nuanced perspective on you know the the history, the events of, and then, you know, what's going on now. So I want to thank you so much for taking, you know, over two hours to tell the story and being so generous with your time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you very much. Uh, of course, I appreciate the opportunity just to be able to talk about this stuff. So I, I'm forever grateful for that. <laughs>